All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. Joining me tonight, the co-founder of A Mission of Love and the founder of Comedy for Cancer, and quite frankly, a professional wrestling juggernaut, to say the least. Please welcome my friend, J.D. Marshall, everybody. J.D., welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight, buddy? Pretty good, Chad. Thanks for having me on. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm good. I'm doing good. I'm still short, fat, and bald, so the, everything is right in the world, you know? And, you just uh, describe me to your listeners. <laughs> somehow, I'm guessing you're probably still taller than me, but, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I don't know. Is 5'10 tall? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm only 5'8". Well, uh, I'm 40, almost 46, so I'm probably 5'7 and a half now because I can't fight <laughs> gravity. But... Uh, <laughs> Other than that, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing good. I still uh, wake up every morning, which is, you know, not to say that I don't still want to throw the alarm clock across the room every time it goes off, but I'm still waking up every day. So, you know. Me too. I'm blessed to wake up six mornings a week and an afternoon once a week. <laughs> I love <laughs> it. I love it. Yeah. Every t- or we say on that day, come to not wake up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's when you roll over and look at the clock. Like, does that really say 1230? You know? Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay, yeah, we'll go at twelve thirty. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry, three o'clock. I'm sorry. Yeah. There we go. That's, that's about it. <laughs> well, you know, when you get to our age, you know, one or two vodkas turn into twelve hours of your life just tend to disappear with no explanation whatsoever. You know exactly. <laughs> with the with the friends in wrestling and the friends in comedy, there's some long conversations. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I I've never really had the. The, the wrestling conversation so much, but uh, that comedy conversation, especially after a good show, you know, you can have a conversation with what, what appears to be 20 minutes, and then you look at your watch and like, does that really say 4 o'clock in the morning? Holy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have to double take it. Like, even lift your glasses, even though you got a prescription. Like, is, something's wrong here. Yeah. I can't, you know. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I- you know, that's how it is with wrestling. We'll go down a road. I was talking to a guy that I had worked with and I hadn't seen him in like 20 years. And I seen him at a show in Monroe uh, last month. And I didn't realize we were outside talking for an hour and a half. And this oh, is yeah. during a blizzard. Oh wow! And the standing on this, what should have been a patio, but somebody forgot half the roof. <laughs> and we just got so lost in the stories of back in the day. And yeah. next thing we hear is ding, ding. Thanks for coming, folks. Show's over. Then I had to go in and lie to Rhino and tell him what a great show it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. You know, it's, it's you know, it's, I was like, what'd you think of my match? I'm like, it was a match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did great, dude. You sweated. Uh, yeah. You didn't pull anything. Uh, let, why don't you go get in the shower? We can talk about it after you're done, you know? <laughs> yeah independent wrestling don't come with shower something. oh that's right i'm sorry why don't you here here's a bottle of axe body spray go smell like a 14 year old son you know you know the business yeah yeah <laughs> yeah my boy get over with the boys bring in some axe body spray well my my you know my boys when they were teenagers the worst mistake in the world we ever made was giving them like an axe body spray gift pack during christmas yeah because each one of them thought that that you know it came with deodorant and body wash and all that other shit right but 
the body spray itself, each one of my boys thought in their own mind, that means, okay, I'm good. I don't have to take a shower for three days. I can just, you know, I'd walk in their bedroom and smell like a frat house in there. And I'm like, Jesus, what's it? Soap and water, you filthy bastards. Let's go, you know? <laughs> That's funny you mentioned that because that uh, lady that works with us on the shows, she gives me a hug after a show and she's like, you smell really nice. What is it? And I go, it's some kind of Axe body spray my wife got me. She's like, no, Axe body spray doesn't smell like that. And I go, hey, let me add that I took a shower. Then oh, yeah. 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 That's a different fragrance when yeah. you do that. Yeah. You smell great. What is it? Um, soap and water? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, people, you get in trouble now. Normally, I'd say a hard on. Didn't know you could smell it. <laughs> but yeah. <mom>. Yeah. <laughs> I and by the way, if anybody gets mad, a 75-year-old woman told me that. So oh perfect. Perfect. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I get my material from. You well, you know, uh, you don't realize until probably you're too old to to have the opportunity to have that conversation again. Uh, because age runs out the clock. But grandma and grandpa usually have a pretty good sense of humor. They just Oh yeah. They're just so caught up in grandma and grandpa mode that you don't you don't find out who they really are until it's almost sometimes too late, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You're right about that. You, you revisit that and you think about how good times you had and, yep. and, but then they also realize that they could kick you to the curb at the end of the night. And you weren't <laughs> living there plunging off of them. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I look forward to, uh, you know, get that phone call. Oh, uh, Hey dad, uh, we're on the way home from the show. We'll be there to pick up the kids in about 30 minutes. Okay crack open a red bull here Junior, drink this real quick you know your dad thinks he's gonna do stuff to your mom tonight drink this red bull right now <laughs> Grandma, grand- what, should, what yeah. should i do drink it all like as fast as you can you know yeah. and then run around a little bit to shake it up so it gets in there faster you know and <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, it's the it's the payback for all the bullshit they put you through, you know? Oh, yeah. No, that's how they get you. Well, Bill Cosby always had a uh, had a great joke back from, um, I think the, the special he did was called Himself. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear about Bill Cosby, but whatever. Yeah. He always had a joke about, you know, uh, single parents. He, I don't consider them parents because if something's broken in the house, you know who did it, you know? Yeah. You know? You know, I, with all my kids, who did this? Nobody knows a damn thing, you know? Yep. It's like they all adapted the no snitching policy at birth, and they just maintained it all the way through their lives, you know, until they got their own place. And then they're like, oh, this shit happened. I don't know what happened. Well, welcome to the real world. Real, real, <laughs> yes. real world, you know? <laughs> in, your, in your line of work, it's different with kids than adults. See, the right, right to remain silent, most adults don't have that ability. No, and it, Kids, on the other hand, they do. Oh, yeah, they'd be like, hey, what happened? I don't know. Well, who's that lady? I don't know. What's your name? Uh, shouldn't you be talking to my mom first? You know, they, <laughs> they know what's up. You know, where most adults that I deal with in my game, especially because I work nights, They've had enough alcohol or pharmaceuticals where they, you know, they have full right to remain silent. But all you got to do is push one of three buttons and they will not utilize the right to remain silent in any way, shape or form. 
Yeah. All you have to do is poke at them a little bit or say, your girl can talk to me without your permission. Oh, no, she can't. You know, and then boom, here we go. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to talk to her. I tell you what happened. All right. Why don't you tell me? Let me let me hear what's up. You know, <laughs> talk yourself right into it. I don't care. You know, exactly. Yeah. That's what I tell friends of mine from uh, doing traffic and being around. We have like four Warren police officers on our board. I said, I really can you talk yourself out of a ticket or a ride, but you can damn sure talk yourself into one. <laughs> oh, you can listen, JD. You can talk yourself into a ticket in the first sentence. Yeah, that officer walks up to the window and it might be something as harsh as the fuck do you pull me over for, you know, or it might be something like, don't you know who I am or any, you know, there's, there's <laughs> yeah. 10,000, you know, I've had that. Ha- don't you know who I am? I have no <laughs> idea who you are until you give me your driver's license, you know? Yeah. And my dad's so-and-so. All right. Well, he's not here. I'll be back with you in just a minute. Yep. You know? I've heard a few of them being out on uh, ride-alongs with my friends. Oh yeah, yeah. I, are... I pay your I pay your wage. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? I always I I used to do it when I was younger, but I've gotten older and a little bit more uh, <coughs> excuse me wiser along the way. I used to keep a nickel in my pocket. Now there you go. Here's your tax refund. You know. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> you know, and I, I hate to put it this way because I've never worked in what I would consider a financially successful neighborhood. Um, yeah. I've always kind of worked in, in, in normal uh, people's environments. Uh, but the vast majority of people, at least in my opinion, that utilize uh, the public safety services on a regular or consistent basis they're not paying taxes anyways. Yeah, you know? exactly. I mean, there are over the course of the 24 years I've been doing what I do. Uh, there have been multiple times uh, where I know just by an address. The the maybe it's the oldest son or the oldest daughter or maybe it's dad, whoever it may be, at least somebody in that house. I know their first, middle, last name and date of birth. And they are not legally connected to me at all, you know? Right. Like, I, I hate to use this term normal people, right? But, like, I'll just say everyday people in society. You're going to know that particular information about your kids, probably your parents, your spouse, maybe yeah. a few extended uh, uh, family members, right? But there's no way in hell you're ever going to know that about just Joe Schmo that lives down the street or Joe Schmo that rents this hotel room by the week, you know, uh, you're not going to know that stuff. And I do about countless, you know, I, like I had a, a younger kid that, that just started working where I work at, uh, I don't know, about nine months ago. And he asked me a question and it shocked me for a second. And then I realized there's no way in hell I can answer that. He's like, how many citizen interactions do you think you've had in your career? And I'd never thought about that before. And then when I, yeah. I, so I, then I, you know, you know, all the friggin' bells and whistles start going off in your head and smoke starts coming out of your ears. Cause obviously I'm not a mathematician. I work for the government, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I, 
I don't even, I don't even, I, there's no way I can even give you even an estimate on something like that. You know, I, I'm sure since 1998, as crazy it's probably going to sound to the general public, I have probably interacted with well over conservatively 750,000 people in my professional career. Oh, I can believe it. You know, it, 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 from just the average, oh, hey, can you tell me how to get to from that all the way to, because there are people, uh, and the general public usually doesn't know this too. I mean, there are people where I'm like in, a, in an official capacity at their house, sometimes as frequently as four times a week out of seven. Yeah. You know, and I, like I had that experience the other night where I, I was kind of giving the business to this guy and he's like, you know, I don't understand. I'm like, listen, dude, like, okay, we know each other. Like, I should have my own coffee cup at your house. I'm here somewhere. <laughs> like, if this keeps up, I better be number one on your Christmas card list, <laughs> which actually he thought that was pretty damn funny, you know. <laughs> and I said, but you realize that there are a vast majority of people out here that unless they get into a car accident or their house gets broken into or their property gets stolen, they're going to live their entire lives without ever having any kind of interaction with somebody like me ever. Right. And I'm here at your house so much. I know who you are, your mom, your sister, your baby mama. I know the way you like to drink your coffee. I know by the way you're talking to me, am I getting anywhere with this or are you too drunk and we're not getting anywhere? And he kind of cocked his head and looked at me. He's like, damn man it's that serious i'm like yeah that's what i'm trying to get you to understand like wow. you're you're 32 you're not 19 or 20 like at 32 this shouldn't still be happening yeah you it comes a time to, to grow up you have to sit down and have a conversation with yourself with you know like okay am i making the right decisions you know like okay if somebody stole your car i'll come and see you all the time but that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. I'm here yeah. because you're still thinking you're 21 and things are cool. And it's not the same case anymore. You know, like uh, there comes a point where you have to say, yeah, I probably don't need to do this anymore, you know, but. And then you get to rare occasion. Like one night I was out, I think it was my friend, Kevin. Uh, no, it was Casey. <clears throat> we, uh, he pulled a guy over. And he's like, do you know why I pulled you over? He was like, yeah, I think I was going 10 over the speed limit. My left uh, back light's out and my right headlight's out. Oh, yeah. And Casey's like, all right, license, registration, goes, just rings everything up. You know, guy's clean, comes back, and he's like, you're the most honest person I've ran into in a while. Oh, yeah. You're free to go. <laughs> yeah, every so often, there are those people. Oh, wait, no, let me rephrase that. It was Halloween night, and... Uh, he made him do an impersonation of Pirates of the Caribbean, Captain Jack Sparrow. And he told him that was his punishment. And yeah, so that's who he was dressed as. And the other guy had no costume on. And he was honest, too. We're like, what are you supposed to be? He goes, passenger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every so often, I'll get somebody that will tell me the honest to God truth. But uh, 1%. Yeah. That, so yeah, it's very small. That, that's probably conservative, you know. And it, it, but it crosses all spectrums, from somebody that might be fourteen all the way up to 
somebody that's 85, you know, yeah. the 85, like I don't ex interact with 85 year olds too often, but let's say, you know, a uh, grandson or great grandson lives with them, you know, even though they know little Jimmy or little Johnny did something completely wrong, their first instinct is to protect them. So they're still going to yeah. lie to me to protect their grandson or their great grandson, you know, right. so I, I get, you know, that's the, the one thing that, um, like when you, when you hear investigators talk about, you know, proper interrogation techniques and stuff like that, that's when you realize how much importance body language has when people are yeah. talking to you. Because, um, like I tell all the younger guys that I work with now, uh, a person's mouth will tell you whatever the hell they want. But their eyes don't lie to you. You just need to. Know yeah. you, you just need to know what you're looking for, right? You know, and it's it, it, well. How do you know all this? Well, because I've been cranking away at this since you were, you know, watching Rugrats eating goldfish crackers. I, this isn't my <laughs> first day, you know. I've been doing this a minute. Yeah, I didn't learn right. this in thirty seconds. It took me a long time, but I under, you know, I can. Like I, I'm not going to sit here and arrogantly say. I can tell when somebody's lying to me no matter what, because there are psychopaths and sociopaths out there that, you know, yeah, they exist, you know, and like, I, I you know, I have a, a, a guy that's riding with me right now. He's fresh out of the academy and I'm kind of training him along his way to, to, to get on his own. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I told him, I said, you know, you need to understand that there are people out here that are, are, are doing heinous acts against society and all those other things, but they are so smart. They're never, not only are they never going to get caught, they're never even going to come across our radar. Yeah. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, it's a broad spectrum from people that will tell on themselves all the way to the people that are going to be multimillionaires over the course of their lives. And nobody's going to even know who they are. That yep. exists. That 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 just exists. There's because JD, I can tell you this, and I'm sure with you being on ride-alongs and having uh, uh, officers on your boards, there are I can't tell you how many countless people, and especially like you just take the the prison population in the state of Michigan, right? Um, if you cut that, there's at least probably a fifth of, of that entire population. That that fifth, those people are so smart. If they just turned the direction 15 degrees, they could be the owner of a multinational corporation. They're that smart. Yeah. They, it's just, they just decided at some point in their lives, no, nah, I'm going to be on this side of the fence and I'm okay with it. You know, like a perfect example is like mafia guys, you know, now the street level and all those, other, those guys are just idiots. But, you know, you get all the way up through the game where you're the boss. Uh, those guys are not stupid, but they also look at going to prison as just the cost of doing business. Yeah. You know, now I'm not sure how it is now, but you know, you get back in the eighties and the nineties going to prison as the mafia boss. I'm sure, you know, other than the fact that you couldn't go wherever you wanted to, I'm sure there wasn't a whole lot of limitations on their lives. You know, they, they probably ate way differently than the general population. They probably, you know, had access to a lot of stuff, but they just looked at it like, yeah, I'm just going to go sit down for the next four years. It's just, yeah, 
just cost um, doing business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do my stretch and get back to work. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually you're probably working while they're in there. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's no way that they're not still running day-to-day operations because they have access to communicate. Even if it's just something where they're talking to some other dude in the yard and that guy's going to call his wife and, and tell her a bunch of stuff and inside what he's telling her, there's a coded message that, uh, you know, Charlie the nose needs to get whacked for, you know, and she's going to, you know, go to coffee with somebody and, uh, you know, Jimmy said this and blah, 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 and boom, stuff happens. I mean, it just, it is what it is, you know, it's it, like, I'll put it to you this way. The government, no matter how hard they try, is not going to be able to legislate bad decisions out of the world, you know, because if that were the case, full life sentences without the possibility of parole or even death sentences in murder cases, that would be such a deterrent that people just wouldn't kill other people. And obviously all you got to do is click on any news outlet you want and see that the deterrent is not effective. Yeah. And I don't know that it necessarily is ever going to be effective because without getting all biblical, because I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a uh, religious person, if you will, but just looking over the annals of, of history that, that we can at least trace Humans have been violent to other humans since there was more than two humans. Yeah. You know, and it's never going to stop. It's, I don't necessarily know what the proper verbiage is to use, but it's just part of, I guess, for lack of a better excuse me, better way to put it, human nature. You know, it's, like that's why you know at four almost 46 like obviously i'm in and out of a lot of bars in the stand yeah. comedy game right but uh like if i'm not in there for that like uh if i'm if i have a friday or saturday free and i want to have a couple cocktails i'm going to do that at my house because yeah guess what there's no bullshit at my house right there's, there's not going to be three different dudes fighting over the same girl and somehow that's going to spill over onto my table and all that I, you know, I, I experienced that life just like everybody else did in their twenties and when I'm just too old and tired and I'm almost not quite, but I'm almost standing in the front door and yell at the neighbor kids to get off my lawn cranky. <laughs> you know, I think I got six, maybe eight years before that monster shows himself for his true colors. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, I've also reached that age where I'm like, okay, I'm good. I can sit here. I can, I can make a burger like they make at the bar just fine in my own kitchen. And I can search YouTube videos about whatever the hell it is I want to watch, whether it's wrestling or whether it's comedy bullshit or whether it's just, yeah, you know, people doing skateboard tricks and falling and breaking their forearms or whatever the hell it is. I feel like, you know, uh, watching that night. And all of that drama and all of that stuff just doesn't seem to exist in my life because I don't go out and allow it to be. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't allow it to be part of your life. When we uh, have like board meetings, we'll go out with a couple of the members. We'll like there's always a place we'll go to once 
And I'll say once because you can't accomplish anything because it's too loud. It's too noisy. So we actually seek out the places that are, you know, like a bar restaurant where, you know, they got, no, we're not doing amateur hour with karaoke. Uh, You don't have a bunch of idiots fighting. Uh, I've outgrown that. Like during the pandemic, when everybody's like, I can't believe I'm stuck in my house. I'm like, I drink at my house. Not a problem. (laughs) Yeah. I am so lazy. I will load a cooler up when I'm barbecuing to take it out to the garage to barbecue. <laughs> in in lieu of walking, you know, back in the house to grab a beer. But it's but that's again, that's at my house. And to me, that's the most comfortable. It's like, yeah. you know, and even my friends are like, why do you always have to be the home team? And I'm like, well, because I have a lot of TVs and cool stuff and comfortable couches and uh spare bedroom in case you get overserved. Well, and you can also say, I also spent 20 bucks on 24 beers instead of spending $35 on seven beers. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. The money you save. Oh, God. If I had the money from my 20s, I'd be a millionaire. Oh, Jesus. I'd be driving an Escalade right now. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Instead of me with my 94 Suburban. Well, and Uh, quite frankly, if I didn't have the kids that I have, I'd be driving an Alfa Romeo or, you know, maybe even possibly <laughs> not in Michigan, but potentially a Lamborghini, you know, you don't realize. Well, you got to have goals. You got to save up for that. And then uh, your goal in life should be the first check you bounce should be to the funeral home. <laughs> right. Spend it all on yourself. Yeah. It's all great until she says, we should have our first one. And then you don't realize the slippery slope that you're sliding yourself down. Yeah. She's like, oh, we should do, I don't have to pull out. Yes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. By the way, folks, we're joking. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't have to realize, you don't realize that in that 30 second window, uh, holy shit, this is going to cost me $750,000 over the course of the next 18 years of my life. Jesus. You know? Yeah. And then sometimes you go into overtime. So <laughs> Oh, you need 50 grand for college. Yeah. <laughs> Why you still live here? Yeah. <laughs> you need my... Yeah. I only work. I, I can only get part-time out. You know, that's uh, my youngest boy. He's kind of going through some stuff right now with regards to work. And he's like, I don't know what I should do. And I'm like, what? And he's like, well, I'm not really sure where I could go. I'm like, dude, all you got to do is walk eight feet and you trip over a help wanted sign right now. I'm like, come on. Yeah. Like, are you serious? Yeah. yeah. I No, I agree. I agree. I keep telling, uh, my, was my daughter's best friend. I'm like, there's so many jobs out there that, you know, it doesn't have to be the end all job, but you got to start somewhere. And, you know, sometimes by accident, you might end up in a career. You know, I was for a delivery company and within a year I was operations manager and it just happened to be right place, right time. And, uh, thank God the the person that was the manager was hateful, did a terrible job, ran employees off. So, I mean, you know, me being behind him, it wasn't an accomplishment until I took the job and actually did better with it. But I just said it, had I not taken that job and, and when I took the job, I thought it was beneath me. I it was going to, I was taking like half a pay cut, but I was just burnt out from the business I was in and wanted to try something different. I was in auto repair. And, you know, in auto repair, everybody thinks you're out to screw them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that wasn't the case. And come to find out that that'll also get you fired because you don't, you right. know, it's a numbers game. 
If you have a slow week or two at the shop, it's your fault because you're the manager, you're the salesperson. Yep. Uh, it just doesn't happen to be, you know, it's like you could have a week, you do $5,000 next week, you do 20 grand in business. Okay. I look at it as averages over a month. They don't, they look at it as replacing the manager, the age old, you can't fire the team, you fire the manager. And, uh, I got burnt out from that. Once a delivery company loved it, just being on the road, driving around, being my own boss and, just slowly just turned into being a management opportunity. And I stayed there seven years as the operational manager. And it was, uh, it was something I didn't expect, never thought I would do something like that. And then that briefly led me to going, uh, you know, again, got burnt out from that. And I went to work for a medical supply company, working in hospitals, doing in-houses and, uh, unbeknownst to my future self, preparing me for what I do with our charity, because I, I was delivering to children's hospital a lot. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and I, and I tell people that, you know, you, you got to take the opportunity that's there, you know, mm-hmm. you can't sit and wait, you know, everybody wants the perfect job, yeah. you know, and, but when you're young, it, you know, like, okay, I'm 52. I'm a little mm-hmm. bit older than you, uh, make you feel better, a lot older than you because <laughs> my number has a five in it. Uh, don't worry, you'll get there. Oh, it's, it's uh, creeping up on me. Well, yeah, when we were growing up, it's like you went out and you cut grass when you were 12, 13 years old. You wanted something bad enough. You did a paper route. You shoveled snow. But the, <coughs> the good jobs weren't there. That's the best way to put it. Right. Nobody was paying us 15 or $18 an hour to push Big Mac on a screen back then. No. Well, and, and to put it into perspective, right? Uh, you can go get a job at McDonald's right now and you make, yeah, let's say between 15 to $18 an hour. Yeah. Right. Uh, the brand new guys coming in where I work at right now to do life and death work are making $19 and 26 cents an hour. Wasn't I put it all in perspective? Well, it's it, like you have to say to yourself, you know, cause nationwide, oh, there's such a shortage of public safety employees. Well, Jesus Christ. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Like, you know, back in the day, um, you know, cops and firemen and nurses and paramedics and all those things, they gave you uh, a little better benefits and a little better of this and a little better of that because there's an inherent risk in that job. Yes. There's a chance when you go to work uh, that, you know, you your car might get driven out of the parking lot a couple of days later by someone in your family because you are never going to drive it again. Yeah. Uh, and everybody kind of understood what that was. You know, you didn't talk about it, but it, it still hung in the, everybody knew what it was. Right. Yeah. Where, where now, uh, that the, the, the risk that you assume by doing that job, um, it's not necessarily, uh identified or for lack of a better way to put it kind of rewarded a little bit right uh it's the the job that i have for the most part is vilified and i realize okay it's a combination of a there are guys out there wearing a uniform that got no business wearing a uniform correct uh but it's also vilified (laughs) by politicians looking to use that as a springboard for whatever political ambitions that they have because politicians will use whatever the hot negative topic is of the day in order to be against that to 
push their career forward. And I get that. Right. Um, but what they're starting to uh, realize, uh, and they haven't figured out uh, a way to rectify it yet, is they vilified the public safety world so much and they've cut so much from it that people don't want that job anymore. Yeah. So then it becomes, oh, like, what do we do? Well, listen, you guys understand you have to offer this and this and this in order to get somebody, in order to get you, get a person to risk their lives for an anonymous person, you're going to have to throw them some stuff. Yeah. Because they have to understand that if something happens to them, their family that they leave behind is going to be taken care of. And if you can't guarantee them that, or if you're still going to guarantee them that, but you're going to cut it between a quarter and half of what it should be. Well, I got, I, I, I guess in my infinite wisdom, I can't even believe why you don't still have a line out the door of applicants ready to come in here, you know, and, and I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how going forward the the right things are going to be done. But just like uh, the place that I work at is, is so um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're so they they need people so bad that they're willing to pay the money to put somebody through a police academy, right? Uh, right. But they're going to pay that money to put them through, and they're also going to pay them a livable wage while they're going through because it's so taxing. It's not like you can have a regular job, right? But if we rewind time 25 years ago when I first got into the the the, the profession that I'm in, if a place were like where I work at would have offered one of those spots, they'd have got 500 applications, 500 for one spot. Yes. Now they have two of them available and they have no applicants for either spot because the, and it's not even millennials. It's the, I think the, the next one is called Zillennials. Zillennials want nothing to do with that work in any way, shape or form. Right. And I don't, I, you know, I'm not in the know. I don't know how to rectify that problem. But I do know nationwide it is a growing problem, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, and even if the general voting public gets pissed and has a backlash against the, the elected officials and demands different, you're still there. Those jobs take time in order to get somebody from point A to point B. Oh, yeah. But even if all of a sudden tomorrow they had an influx of, let's say my job got a hundred applicants for two spots from the time those applications get submitted until the time that person's actually like working on the street, functioning within the community, you might be talking as far off as 12 to 18 months. So the residual effects of decisions that were made outside of our scope of control they can't be fixed overnight. Right. And, you know, I guess to add on to it a little bit, you know, in my line of work, 
I've learned over the past two and a half decades, there are plenty of people out there that just get caught up in the moment or whatever, and they make stupid decisions and, and shit just happens. Yeah. And they learn their lesson and you really never hear from them again. And then there's those people that just kind of have turbulence in their lives and they kind of tap dance in and out. But then there are also those other people that, um, like I said about the mafia earlier, going to jail is just cost of business. Like, uh, and I'm not necessarily going to say one way or the other, like, okay, uh, rehabilitating criminals. Okay. If they want to be, it's just like somebody that's got a drug or an alcohol problem. If they right. want to be re rehabilitated, they're going to do it. If they don't, yes. they might, um, uh, say what they got to say and do what they got to do until they get their freedom back. And then they're going to go back out on the street and they're going to do exactly what the hell they want to do, regardless of what anybody says. Right. Um, so, uh, so I think, it, you know, maybe one fifth of the population you have, for lack of a better way to put it, like predators on society. And, and and I don't mean that as like, you know, uh, you know, like the Charles Manson, like we're, we're going to just go out there and kill people. Yeah. It just might be some guy that his game is instead of getting a real job and going out there, he's going to run through neighborhoods and he's going to break into cars every night. And yeah, four nights out of six, he's not going to get shit. And the other two nights, he's going to get enough shit to support himself for the next two weeks while he keeps doing the same thing. And he's going to keep doing it over and over and over again. And that guy might be just effective enough where he's going to do that shit for four or five years and never get caught right and in the meantime somebody like you or me is going to pay an extra fifty dollars uh, a month on our car insurance because of the zip code we live in and all of the crime that exists against cars in that zip code you know yeah. nobody ever is willing to sit down to have those in-depth conversations it's all um, you know, hot button conversation points and we need to do this and we need to do that. And, you know, it's <clears throat> like, I wouldn't walk up to a general, a four-star general and say, uh, the way you guys are flying those planes is bullshit. You need to do it. <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. So, but all politicians for the most part, who've never actually like worn a uniform and been in a position where, uh, they're going to have to fight. And if they lose that fight, there's a real high probability they're going to die from that fight. They've never been in that position, but yet right. they're they're perfectly prepared to stand, uh, especially on a pedestal with a microphone, and tell the people in my profession how they're doing it wrong. Right. You know. Yeah, so, they haven't walked in your shoes, and they they think they're an expert. Yeah. And uh, and you talk about making changes. Uh, you know, when it was a hot button issue. And uh, it was constant news coverage and protests and everything. I had a friend of mine, very successful career going, 30-year-old um, young lady, well, and, but her dream was to become a police officer. And she applied in the best case scenario where they offered the part-time class uh, at the community college where she could continue to work, do the class in the evening. Unfortunately, she was the only person that signed up. <laughs> But she had so much passion that she bet on herself, left her job, and became a police officer. But the problem is there isn't a lot of people that grew up with that dream like she did. 
And, you know, and, and again, the other problem is, and I've learned this from the charity aspect of it, six years ago, I could get on the news anytime I wanted to, to talk about an event. Now it's like they're in a business of not selling good stories. And like, we get the local paper here when the officers come out and they help us at our charity bottle drives and stuff. And I've often talked about that. Like there needs to be more press to see the human side of police officers and how they get invested within, you know, within the community. Uh, We have community police officers that engage with the citizens. You know, what can they do? What should they be looking out for? Um, We had a child that was in hospice at his house and three of my friends went over there to see him. And in less than 24 hours, they organized like a 30 car drive by the house with lights and sirens. And they had the SWAT tank. And we were in that talking on a loudspeaker. And I knew the kid heard everything. And um, but nobody wanted to talk about that. Right. When I reached out to a couple people in the local media uh, and, you know, it's the old you can't throw them under the bus because you might eventually need them and maybe they'll come around that wasn't a story of interest to them. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was because, um, you know, and there was some backlash. Well, I can't believe there's officers out there getting paid to do something like this. No, no, no. Everybody that was out there did it on their own time. People came in on their days off yep. and did something like that. All they had to do was hear about And I think if those stories could ever come to the forefront and the incentive program <laughs> to not only have a livable wage, but insurances and stuff that protect the family. Most of the officers I know are, you know, they're in the infancy of starting families. Um, You know, and I'm sure, and and I know that for a fact, when you go to, you know, your, your profession, a firefighter, they go to work, there's no guarantee they're coming home. Right. And that's a hard sell on somebody unless they're passionate about it but then again at the same time if they don't have a servant's heart and they're not passionate about it they probably shouldn't wear that uniform right you know and that's the one thing i can agree on and it's and the one thing that does bother me bother me about it and i know we're, we're going off on this uh political road but on this one i really do uh believe in every profession in every business has a bad person Mm-hmm. Okay, you'll have a bad experience at Tim Hortons. You'll go to another Tim Hortons. You know, you just don't go on, you know, social media and blast Bill at Tim Hortons because he put two creams in your coffee, you know, or he didn't give you the cup condom so you burnt your little fingers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or whatever you call it. I don't know. I mean, they have a name for it, but a uh, cup koozie, whatever. But uh, yeah, and and I've had this talk with friends of mine, and. You know, it's it's like you have to see the entire department in every city and, you know, in every state, state police, sheriff and understand, yeah, there could be a bad person, but there's so much good going on. But it's not a story anybody wants to hear. It's just right. it's the positive stories are few and far between now. And it's sad. Yeah. And that goes for everything. That goes for uh, police officers, firefighters. We're, we're short on firefighters in the city of Warren. They've tried to put incentive programs on it. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the wage. You know, if you can go be a manager at Meyer and make more money than putting out fires, unless your passion was to be a firefighter, you're going to go work at Meyer. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, pretty good chance you're always coming home from work at Meyer. 
No, I know what you're saying. It's just, you know, and the problem is uh, when the public safety world is vilified the way that it is, you're going to, like every chief of police, whether you're in a small podunk town with three people or a major city where you got, you know, 10 million people, uh, I think every chief of police is fighting and probably every fire chief and, and probably even hospital administrators across the, uh, the the United States, they're all fighting the recruiting game because they've got 20 positions and they can't even talk to anybody into even thinking about taking that job because, you know, part of it is it's, it's vilified and part of it is the risk. And again, going back to what I was saying before, you know, the, usually some of the benefits have to offset the risk because nothing against Tom that works at a cubicle at Ford credit every day, but the risk involved with him doing his job is much smaller than what I do because even though he may talk to somebody on the phone that's ready to rip his throat up, he's talking to that guy on the phone. Right, exactly. Where I've got to go to these people's houses and see them face to face. And, you know, medical and and fire uh, are even different from from the police world in, in the public safety game because, you know, the fire department might go to your house because you're having a medical emergency that doesn't require the fire to, the police department to show up. So whatever, They're, you're not mad at those guys. Yeah. I don't go to anybody's house that's having a good day. Right. Ever. And it's a broad spectrum of reasons why that is. But I don't ever, you know, whether it's I'm delivering bad news or the worst day is happening to somebody in their life. Uh, where they got victimized or somebody's going to get arrested and go to jail. I'm not showing up at somebody's house to give them a high five because they reached uh, their 60th birthday and let's crack some beers and throw some darts. That's just not the world that I live in. So people, people, and, and over the course of time, people have never really been too excited to see somebody like me show up at their house. And I get that part, but you know, 99.95% of the time, it goes the way it's going to go. Sometimes somebody's got to get muscled into some handcuffs or whatever the case may be. Yeah. But that zero point, that 0.001%, it goes horribly wrong. Yeah. And it always goes horribly wrong in the blink of an eye. And someone like myself is forced to make life and death decisions with sometimes less than a full second to make that decision. Right. And then you fast forward six months. Now every aspect of that decision is, you know, categorized and broken down by the microsecond in a court of law. And Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're put to task on the stand, which don't get me wrong. I think that's the way that it should be, but if you're not offering people the right incentive to do that job, you're not going to get the candidates to take that job. No. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've come across over the last 24 years of my, you couldn't pay me enough to do your job. 
No, trust me, I, 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 I get it. There are days where I am driving into work going, what the hell am I still doing this for? Yeah. You know? Because, you know, we're not uh, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, 20, we don't, you know, doors at the police station don't have a lock on, on them on purpose because right. we don't close. Uh, so, you know, people in my profession miss birthdays and Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter and family reunions and, and anniversary parties and weddings and all the other stuff that like the general public never has to give up on because right. that stuff happens on weekends, not the birthday parties and stuff, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when do the police get called the most to people's houses? Not on a Tuesday, on a Friday yep. or Saturday. So when do you need the most cops out there? You know, they just never, I, I'm willing to take all of the heat for every bad decision that every officer that's ever wore a uniform has made. As long as they are willing to also broadcast not only every positive thing that people that wear a uniform do, either spoken, yeah. and this is an important part, spoken or unspoken, and all the sacrifices that them and them, they and their families have to take just in order for mom or dad to have that job. And I, I want to just go back to what I said all the things that they do, either spoken or unspoken, because, and I, I know it, it happens because I've seen it myself, but yeah. there are a lot of police officers out there that do things for something they stumble across or uh, in general <clears throat> where maybe they help out a person or a family or whatever the case may be. And sometimes they take a lot of fanfare and a lot of, uh, political or, or, or excuse me media notoriety for it but nine yeah. times out of ten all that shit happens without anybody ever knowing about it and i know and it's a thing that where i my perspective uh well i, I wanted to be an officer but the 16 year old me was working in professional wrestling and i was going to be a millionaire and uh breaking news the millionaire part didn't happen but 52 year old me wish 16 year old me would have stayed on that path to be a police officer even in these times and going out and being on a ride along and being on patrol you get to see that side you get to see every aspect of police work uh, our city has a community police class that they do and they basically show you what you know what goes on and they show you some of the videos and even how just a traffic stop on the side of the road can be fatal. Mm. You know, seeing officers getting hit and, you know, it was the old, there was a video with the stop sticks where the person that was running decided that no, I'm just going to drive at the officer instead and to avoid the stop sticks. And you see stuff like that and it's just, you know, I think if more people had the privilege of seeing what goes on in a police department and on a ride along, they would they would have a different outlook. You know, because like like you said, it goes without fanfare. A lot of good things that are done do not get reported. You know, I've watched officers save people from overdoses. OK, that's not going to make the news. But they go in there with the intent to save that life. 
Well, J.D., and I'll tell you this right now, because we just had this conversation at work last night. There's one guy that lives within the city that I work in. There are four officers that, that I work with that between the four of them, because we all carry Narcan in our bags, yeah. between the four of them, they have brought him back from the brink of death 12 times. Damn. In the last 18 months, they have, for lack of a better way to put it, they have saved his life 18 times, like basically once a month for the last 18 months. Not, It hasn't gone that way. It's not like July we got him once and September we got him once. We might right. get him. We might get him five times in August. Then we don't see him again until December. We get him four times more again. But in the same breath, those four officers have combined together to save this guy's life eighteen times. And that discussion is never had, ever. Right. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Well, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, a professional in the uh, political strategy game, but you know, if you're pushing uh, your your cause one way or the other, the last thing you want is for your <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> yeah, spring allergies for whatever reason are just <coughs> whipping my ass this year. Um, but the last thing you want to have happen is for your adversary to have any leg above you. So yeah. if you can control the narrative, you can make sure that that doesn't happen. That's correct. And the other thing about law enforcement is it swings in a pendulum. It always goes from super high uh, support to you know, it, it, over the course of time, it swings all the way to the other end where it's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. And eventually it will swing the other way. I don't have any idea how long that takes. And I don't know that it happens within the scope of the rest of the time that I will be in that career. Yeah. Eventually it will get back to the other way. I don't know if it's in the next two years, five years, 10 years, or if it takes a quarter of a century to get back there. I don't know. But eventually it will swing back. The problem is it's been vilified, especially in the last 36 to 48 months, more so than ever. So right. the recruiting for the job itself is taking such a drastic hit that I don't know that governments are going to necessarily be able to recover from it without consolidating services. Like, for example, with you living in Warren, you know, are we five years away from the Warren and Sterling Heights Police Department being one giant unit? <clears throat> yeah. simply, simply because there's not enough bodies to fill the need for each individual city so they have no other choice but to do it that way. Right. Because even if the recruiting numbers are down and the people are not um, coming in to fill those positions, that 911 phone never stops ringing. 
Right. Those runs still have to be answered. Those problems still need to be taken care of, regardless of whether you got 20 people to take care of it or six. It still has to happen. Yep. And that's, uh, I have no aspirations whatsoever of being um, involved in the higher elevations of, of political uh, policy making in any way, shape, or form. But right. I got to believe that administrators across the country are probably losing sleep at night. Like, how do I deal with this? Right. What do I do? You know, because sometimes decisions have to be made on, you. okay, you got two calls pending. Uh, this lady is getting beat around by her husband, but this guy is being chased around the outside of a bar with a guy with a knife. And I've got enough people to answer one or the other, but not both at the same time. Yeah. Somebody's going to wait. And that puts it in perspective mm-hmm. right there. And, and, you know, and uh, yeah, is it going to change it? It has to change on so many levels to with the incentives, the, you know, the Academy um, and also the viewpoint of the public. You know, we, we live in a world that I came through wrestling when I was 16 years old. I'm now 52. I was in wrestling before social media and now I'm back in it with social media and I can say back in the eighties and nineties, there's a lot of people in wrestling that would have been in trouble if there was social media. Oh, for sure. And, and now it's, you know, it's the world has changed. You have to be careful. Uh, We tell wrestlers all the time, be careful what you post, you know, it will come back to haunt you. There have been Mm -hmm. people that have posted something on Twitter six years ago, denied jobs by the WWE because of statements they made on social media. Not saying that that person hasn't grown and could have changed your opinion, but it's out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the old perception becomes reality. And it's caused people jobs over that. And it's a whole different world we live in. You know, I, I go on my Facebook. I'm blessed because I'm friends with officers and comedians. So I'll have something cheerful, but I'm going to bump into somebody's belief that's going to start a social media fire. Right. And then everybody's going to jump on that. It's an, you know, and I've seen, you know, both sides of it. If I, if I share a story about something that happened and it's, uh, you know, it, it could be about a robbery or something, it'll get more reaction to it than if it was about promoting a charity event. Oh, by far, you know, it's, um, you know, and like to take that to the next level, I tell people, you know, all it because Social media is also prevalent within my job. Excuse me. Not necessarily because of the people that I work with, but because of the runs that I go on. Well, so-and-so posted this and -and so-and-so posted that. I tell people all the time, I understand the federal government gives you the freedom of speech to say whatever you want, whenever you want to say it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's applicable all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. Can I arrest you for it? No. But are you going to lose out on five job job opportunities because of it? Probably. Yeah. You know? I think it's it's pretty common practice in all aspects of, of job recruiting, private and public sector, that I think that there's somebody 
uh, within those organizations that does some sort of social media research before they hire. Oh, yeah. Oh, whether definitely. It's, whether it's for a, a cop or a fireman or a nurse or a doctor, I think it's also for an accountant that may be getting ready to work at Ford. Well, we need to make sure that this guy doesn't have some stuff on there that's going to come back and bite us in the ass. And in the entertainment industry. Yeah. I was uh, not going to mention a network, but <clears throat> in talks with a network about doing something during Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. And they found something on my social media from a board member that I had to let go over it, uh, was using our charity logo in what would be deemed an inappropriate way. Right. Okay. And just, you know, that's the reality of the world we live in. A network representative is sending me screen captures mm-hmm. of something I didn't even know that was going on. And that's how deep they look in your social media. It's yeah. not just you. It's who you follow, who your friends are, um, you know, and they, they, they see how you interact with them. And then that don't I don't know that it cost us an opportunity because I, I did, which I believe 100 percent was the correct thing to do anyways, once brought to my attention. Um, but, yes, it can cost you opportunities, not just what you say, but who you're connected to. Well, you know, the, tech, the, the technology also exists because. And I'm not going to sit here and profess that I'm a technology expert by a long shot. Like I really need to, to employ, pardon my French, but I need to employ a computer nerd to work for me. I just don't have the resources to do it. But, uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter got into some sort of, uh, social media bickering match with another girl in school and they're 15 so shocking you know but the school called me because they are in a position technology wise to monitor all of their students social media activity and they saw it and i'm like wait like how do you do oh no we have an app and we do this and blah blah Uh, and uh, i'm not in a position uh, you know like Gone are the days, like, I feel bad because gone are the days where, like, I was the wizard because I'd go down the road and teach my grandparents how to program their VCR to record their shows, you know, and I was a genius, you know, now I get a brand new phone and I fumble with it enough where I have to, like, all right, how do I do this, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I'm constantly that way with my friend Ross. Like, I can build websites, but I can't do anything with my phone, and Ross works for Apple. Uh, he's one of our top board members and we'll, we'll just be in a restaurant. I'll hand him my phone. I'm like, can you fix this? Yeah. You know, and he'll hit two buttons and it's taken care of. But now the school, and I, I, I don't know if this is an existent thing within every school district, but at least the school that my daughter goes to, they have the ability to monitor everything so they can kind of catch it and nip it in the bud before it becomes a bigger problem. Which to a certain extent, like I'm 50 50 on it, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, as the dad, I'm like, okay, I want to know everything's going on. But, in, and this probably sounds crazy, but even though that I work for the government, I also, as a person, I'm not necessarily that cool with Big Brother being that invasive. You right. Know? It's that slippery slope that you exist in where, okay, you can have this, but you're going to have to accept this at the same time, you know, and, 
I mean, it's good in a way because, you know, like the, the situation, with, you know, because 15 year old girls are, are you know, <laughs> something as insignificant as, oh, I use this hair straightener. No, I use this hair straightener. And that <clears throat> turns yeah, into. Yeah, exactly. A, <clears throat> um, so I'm glad it got nipped in the bud before it could be more. But yet I also, I found myself walking away from that going, damn, this school is watching their, watching my kid better than I am. Like, right. <laughs> am I doing something wrong here? You know? Um, so, you know, yeah, I'm kind of this, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, but like from the entertainment aspect, I get it because you don't want to get somebody involved with a show. Uh, and it's for all the right reasons. It was a raise awareness. And then after the fact, you know, like you're, you're literally going to film this in May, June or July. It's not even going to air till September. Right. But then, you know, obviously you're going, you know, promotional teasers and stuff are going to be leaked out. And then with the way it is in social media now, somebody's going to look to knock a person down a peg. And like I said, in our situation, had I uncovered it myself, it would have been handled much differently. It would have been, you know, did you think, were you thinking correctly when you made this mistake? Uh, I need you to unfuck it for better words. Mm -hmm. And maybe the friendship stays intact. But the way it came out and it was such a storm, I mean, I get it because you don't want it to be out there after the fact. Trust me, it broke my heart to make that decision. But again, it was somebody's bad decision that led to it. And again, being real close to somebody, you didn't even know it was going on until somebody else told you. Right. You know, and I mean, do I know how? No, but I guess there's ways that you can post things that, you know, people don't see. And that has, and again, that has happened in wrestling where somebody that was 16 years old said something really stupid on social media and a 21 year old then will not be hired because of it. Right. Now, you know, it, it's to me, it's like, okay, that 16 year old kid, did he grow? Did he learn from what he's, you know, did their stance change? Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my situation, it was something that was unbeknownst to me. Uh, but, you know, it was how I handled it. You know, it was like that. And the thing is, too, it's also real close to me because the, the charity is it was me and my daughter started. It's her legacy. If you right. use something from that, I mean, I can forgive a lot of things. Like I always say you can talk crap about me. You can pick and poke at me. But you talk about my kids and especially you talk about my daughter. That's a line that you can't come back from. Right. And anything that's connected to our charity is connected to her. I'm, I'm just the one carrying her legacy on. I'm not. You know, it's not about me. It never has been about me. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, what's, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of into that too. I understand there's right reasons for doing it. I, I had a mentor, a father, um, whose daughter unfortunately took her life and was able to block her parents from her social media page saying mm -hmm. that she was going to do that that night. And they didn't till after the fact seen screen captures from friends of hers. Wow. And in that circumstance, you know, could they have made a difference? Could they have, you know, if they would have seen it, if somebody would have been proactive, you know, we, we had a, a child be killed at one of the high schools in Warren that it was posted on social media that the person was going to do it. And, you know, they just thought it was, you know, blowing smoke up everybody's ass and just talking about it. Nope. They actually went through with it. 
So, I mean, I see some good aspects of it, but no, I get what you're saying. You know, it's like, is big brother watching too much, you know, but then I'm on the other side too. When somebody's like, don't get the vaccine, it has a tracer in it. I'm like, you know, Facebook has a tracer in it. <laughs> I mentioned to a friend I wanted to go see Barry Manilow. We're in Vegas. Feel free to dub over that. But, <laughs> but five minutes later, I go on Facebook and the first ad is for Barry Manilow at Westgate. My friend talks about going to this uh, ice bar and it's on his Facebook feed within a matter of minutes. And it, it just makes you wonder, like Labor Day, I look for charcoal, buy one, get one free. And then oh, I go to yeah. Facebook and there's an advertisement for Kings for Charcoal. It's, like, it's crazy. I had to rent a U-Haul earlier. And then there's like three other storage truck ads when I go on Facebook. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that has to make you wonder. I mean, that's just, I mean, is it one time it's a coincidence, but every damn time, you know, and that's why sometimes I open my Facebook and people are around me. I kind of tilt it the other way, you know, I don't yeah. be like, oh, dude, were you looking at the pens? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I, you know, <sighs> I've been searching for weeks for prescription sunglasses. Right. And I've been talking about it out loud, not loud. <clears throat> and I've never searched anything about it uh, on my phone or anything. Just talking to the boss and, and the kids and stuff like I got to do something because um, <clears throat> my union bought all of us a pair of pretty decent sunglasses a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, but I, I checked into what it would cost to put prescription lenses in those things. And it was like 600 bucks. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> like yeah. I want, I want prescription sunglasses, but not that goddamn bad. Jesus, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it, but I had not searched anything. And like over the course of the last three weeks, every, not every, but, I would say 70% of the ads in my Facebook feed are <laughs> this prescription company and that prescription company. And I'm looking at that shit going, oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, yeah. I get it. I understand what it is. I know, you know, most people don't realize, okay, but like all the technology that we have available to us in some way, shape, or form is declassified military technology the government's like no. yeah we don't need that anymore they can have that now um because they've moved on to something bigger and better so you know our phones not only does it track everything we do and everything we go uh, but i can speak on it simply in a professional capacity i don't care if you uh wipe your cell phone clean and take the sim card out because you're going to trade it in on a new one like if it if they really want to see everything you ever searched on, they can get it. You know, yeah. The only way to kind of circumvent that, you're gonna to have to kind of like dump it in oil. You know, yeah. But you know, Verizon and AT and T and all the other companies, in order to circumvent that problem, we'll give you seven hundred dollars for that old phone as a trade. -in. Yeah. You know, so nobody's gonna damage it because they want that money. Because you know, a new—I I just got a new iPhone last week, after four years, and 
you know, the new phone upgrade to get it to the same level as what my old one was. The new one was like twelve hundred bucks. Yeah. And they gave me eight fifty on the old one. And I'm like, hell yeah, I'll take the eight <laughs> fifty. You know. Uh you know, don't get me wrong. I might the if the government gets access to it, they're not gonna find that I was looking up, you know, looking up trying to figure out how to make pike bombs and stuff like that. You know. Yeah. Um they're gonna find an awful lot of inappropriate memes and 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 you know some some crude humor text messages ex- exchanged with a lot of other people that give me the same thing back but i'm not worried about you know stuff being found on that that's going to get me on the uh 10 most wanted list but right everything you ever do now is completely tracked electronically because it's all declassified technology so um you know, I worry about those things, and I think, you know, like I have a couple of those Alexas in the house because, I, you know, Alexa, turn on Queen, you know, while, or, or, you know, uh, sometimes I'll get a little bit crazy and I'll be cooking an Italian dinner and I'll be like, Alexa, turn on some Ital- traditional Italian music. Because so, somehow I think well, if I'm making up homemade pasta but I've got Italian music playing in the background that somehow it's going to taste better, you know? <laughs> So I have a couple of those rigs in the house, and I know oh, those things are listening right. to everything I say. But right. you know, what are they going to hear me say? You guys, somebody needs to clean the bathroom. And somebody needs to do the dishes. They're going to hear me say that shit all the time. And then when nobody yeah. else is around, they're going to be like, "Hey, Mama, nobody's at the house. You want to, you know, clean around?" <laughs> they're going to hear that bullshit. You know, <laughs> they're not going to hear me say, "Alexa, how exactly do I make a you know pipe bomb with the least amount of." traceable technology to it they're they're not going to get that shit from me but i realize yeah. that it also is out there you know uh yeah yeah if it was mine it, it would be the cheapest way to make it so yeah. <laughs> i'm ghetto <laughs> yeah. well the cheapest way to make it or alexa how can i wax my balls without hurting myself at the same time you know I've got to put a singlet on this weekend. I don't want to look like I'm smuggling Chewbacca in my shorts. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) Or you might be the guy that needs the backside done. I don't want to look like Buckwheat jumped in feet first. to, to (laughs) To take it into your wrestling world, thank God the Brooklyn Brawler always wore jeans. Yeah. Jesus, if he had the bikini wax. Yeah, that's a hairy dude right there. Yeah, that, 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 that like the wax box might be like, this is the instructions you follow unless you're the Brooklyn brawler. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, back when I started, there was guys that would wear masks so they could wrestle twice on a show or they could do a different character. And I had a tag team and one of the guy in the tag team, and, and as soon as he hears this, he knows I'm talking about him. But it just had a real hairy back, you know? So, yeah. so you knew it was, you know, there was no way to hide that. You know, it just it just massively stood out. Because so, I, I remember before I was even with that group, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know, I totally know who that is. <laughs> and then one time to be cute, they added a third member with the same problem. And I'm like, I know who that is, too. Especially like you're saying in wrestling, but even back then, you know, there's a lot of guys that were just shaving their backs and their chests, and it's oh, like, yeah. man, I'm good. 
Mm-hmm. I, I had one. I had my chest shaved for a, a stress test, and it. Oh God, talk about itching. I don't see anybody could do that regularly. Yeah. I was freaking out. It was like a cool design, though. You know, it looked like when the atomic bomb went off. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about keeping it, but then I remembered I don't like to be seen without a shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not my best look. <laughs> I, I'm going to use the words of uh, our uh, mojo in the morning. Uh, I'm the guy that goes in the pool with my shirt on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I'll, quite frankly, I do that for two reasons. Obviously, I've got you know some extra pounds that I really don't want to put on display. But yeah. Uh, and the people that are going to listen to this podcast are never going to see it. But I have, quite frankly, what I call Caucasian disease. I'm so white, I'm a little bit scary when you see me at first. Like, whoa, shit, <laughs> you know. Uh, so even if I put SPF 45 on, I'm still so worried about it. Yeah. Because I, I, I was stupid enough when I was like 19 uh i had my girlfriend at the time rub a bunch of sunblock on my back and i took my shirt off and i waxed my truck right and it was may it wasn't too terribly uh bad but it was still it was warm even through that sunblock i got burned so bad jd that i could hardly even wear a t-shirt for about five days like wow blistered up they, they don't sell it anymore, but they used to sell this aerosol can of the stuff called solar cane. They make it in like a liquid form now, but they used to be able to spray it. And yeah. I had to spray that stuff on me every 15 minutes for three days in order to just be able to like breathe. Yeah. So over the top. And uh, so that's also one of the reasons why, you know, like I don't... Uh, I don't put myself in harm's way with the sun anymore. The sun and I are not friends. We don't hang out <laughs> together. I don't give a shit if that guy's family's doing all right. You know, like <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, he can kiss my ass and blow up tomorrow. I know that's yeah. not, I know that's not, you know, a, a, a positive thing for all the rest of mankind, but that's my personal feelings, at least, you know, like he's never really done well for me, you know, you have you haven't lived till you had one on the top of your head, the sunburn. Oh, I've uh, listen. I you and I both have the same follicle problem. I mm-hmm. I uh, not only do I put sunblock on my head, but I also put a sun hat on on top of the sunblock, just to make sure that doesn't happen. Oh man, yeah, it happened to me helping my friend Rhino with his campaign. I was out there for twelve hours and had no sunblock and. Oh. I listened to the Michigan weather and it was supposed to be cloudy and it wasn't. You paid for it. It was you, awful. You had to pay for that for four or five days at least. Oh yeah. He used it for a, a, a speech to the locker room talking about de- being dedicated. <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is dedication right here. Look at that head. And I'm <laughs> like, yep, that's dedication. All right. Or stupidity. Well, we've rambled and rambled and rambled, but we haven't talked about a couple different topics. So we've we've tap danced around the, the 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 wrestling game, and we'll we'll get back into that. But uh, the co-founder of the Mission of Love and the founder of Comedy for Cancer, talk to me about that a little bit as to a what that is and b kind of what you got, what got you 
moving in that direction. Okay. Just first off, if you lost my picture, it's because I'm charging my phone. Uh, a mission of love was in December, 2014, my daughter, Stephanie was diagnosed with cancer and we had asked for, um, like families to talk to, you know, how to deal with this, how to talk to our son about what our daughter was going through. And, uh, there just wasn't anybody that was volunteering to do it at the hospital we were at. And we talked to one of the social workers and I, and just bounced around the idea, like, you know, if somebody set up a website for, uh, you know, support that could help out in these situations. And in the middle of that conversation, my daughter blurted out, well, you build websites. And so that's where we first started was building the website to do that. She, uh, she insisted that it be blue. Uh, I insisted it didn't have cancer in the name. And I came up with a mission of love because the year she was born, we seen Neil Diamond after September 11th. And his second song was off his new album and it was a mission of love. And uh, he totally butchered the song. And I've never seen a singer more uncomfortable in my life than when the band stops refusing to play it. And he just wanted to tap out of the song. So I wanted something that could kind of like, you know, bring a smile to my face and, and remember that. And plus her first concert was ever uh, to go see Neil Diamond. Thankfully, it could have been the Wiggles or Justin Bieber, but she picked Neil Diamond. Right. Um, and then uh, so we did that. We started off with that. But it, as uh, you know, it was only a few months later of April 11th of 2015 that we lost her uh, to cancer at 13 years old. And I went to, uh, we wanted to do a gift, a monthly gift to kids uh, battling cancer. And I went out and I did my first gift the uh, very next month. And at that time, I started hearing the stories about the financial struggles that uh, cancer families were going through. And I started getting wind of it when we spent like 27 days in hospice. And early on in there, I was hearing stories about other families in the hospital that couldn't pay their phone bill. Uh, we're looking at possibly, you know, losing their house because they couldn't pay rent. You know, I mean, some some cases you're in the hospital four or five days a week doing treatment with your child. You know, one of the parents has to become the quarterback of the medical team and the other one, you know, keeps their job to try to keep their head above water. So I bounced around with some ideas of, you know, like, okay, you know, and, you know, it's still even in the first couple of weeks of hospice, you're still in that hope phase and believing that, you know, maybe there'll be an 11th hour miracle. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, she pulls through this. What are we going to do to help these families financial, financially? Um, so then I went to work on my, on my host buying domain names. And the first idea was I was going to do professional wrestling. And I was going to go back to running shows, which I walked away from it in 2001 when she was born, because now it was time to be a dad and do a thing called making house payments. Right. And, and I couldn't risk any more money on shows. Uh, so I thought about that. And then I thought back to, uh, which is actually a week ago from today is the seventh anniversary of her getting to spend 20 minutes with Gabrielle Glacius at the Fox theater backstage. And, uh, and how that all worked out is because, uh, Gabriel's a, a tremendous human being to begin with. 
Uh, it started with uh, prior, uh, right around the time of her diagnosis, I had ordered some stuff from his store for her uh, and wrote, wrote his team. And they held it back till he got off tour so they could sign it. And then he overnighted it. So that started a line of communication. And then when we knew he was coming to, to Michigan, we wanted to get her to VIP seats. And unfortunately, she was in a wheelchair and uh, they, you know, she couldn't sit in that section. So we bought her the next best seats that we could, uh, reached out to Gabriel's team. And they said, yeah, no problem. We'll, we'll leave the passes at will call. And uh, when we went to will call, uh, Gabriel ended up putting her on his VIP list. So he uh, actually met with her for 20 minutes before he went into the room with the people that, you know, had the VIP passes. Wow. And he did uh, 10 minutes next to her in her ear for only her to hear a, uh, a, a comedy routine. And uh, it was, that was very emotional. I mean, we're, we're crying because she's having a time of her life and, you know, that we're watching this guy that, you know, we've watched on TV together, you know, taking it, taking that 10 minutes and making it special for her. And then the next 10 minutes were all about, you know, grabbing her phone and taking selfies and uh, bringing a photographer in to take a bunch of pictures that they ended up blowing up and autographing and we had to run up an intermission and pick them up. And, uh, so, you know, as we progressed in hospice, I, you know, I realized it wasn't about me, you know, it was always going to be about her legacy and that's where comedy for cancer was born. And we were, uh, one year and five days after we lost her, we did our very first comedy for cancer show. And I'll never forget that when we did that show leading up to it, you know, being new at booking comedy shows, uh, I thought of it as wrestling. We always, you know, we booked our shows three months ahead of time. We were promoting them three months ahead of time. And I just, people were messaging me going, do you think this adult type show is going to go over for a childhood cancer charity? Uh, you guys are probably going to be one and done. But it's, it's so surreal that, you know, here we are in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll be on our six year, you know, anniversary of, of doing these shows and the amount of money that we've raised at these events, you know, is just, it, it, you know, sometimes it's the greatest feeling in the world, but then sometimes you put the actual money in perspective, like you raise 3000 for somebody. And at the same time, you're realizing that that's probably going to last three or four weeks. Right. Um, we just did a show in Port Huron where the family travels from Port Huron to Ann Arbor on Tuesday night, stays in a hotel, and then you're doing inpatient Wednesday and Thursday. And, and you, know, you know, with the price of gas right now, yeah. you, uh, and, you know, then you're eating out and, you know, you're staying in hotels. You know, how long is that, you know, $3,000 going to last? And, you know, so, I mean, sometimes we have to go back and do second shows for people. And uh, for me, it's it's been such a rewarding experience on multiple levels because I've met through the biggest tragedy in my life. I've met some of the greatest people. And, uh, you know, I'll always be uh, thankful to Gabrielle. I mean, I that, um, you know, I had the. The last conversation with my daughter before we had to rush her to the hospital, best day of my life was playing. And uh, 
I asked her, you know, like, what's been the best day of your life so far? And she goes, meeting Gabrielle Glacius. And she was like, what was yours? And I go, meeting you and becoming a father. And I told her I loved her. And a couple hours later, we were rushing her to the hospital. Um, And you, you know, when you, you, you know, everybody says, you know, well, the hardest thing that you do is you bury a child. And uh, sometimes I have to mentor families that we're going to, you know, that they're going to end up there too. And I, I say, you know, the one thing that I could walk away from this and remain sane is that I heard my daughter say she did have a best day of her life. Right. And I, that meant a lot to me. If it would have been any other conversation, um, I don't know that there would be an omission of love. I don't know that there would be a comedy for cancer. I don't know that that year I'd be driving to Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, 11 hours with my broken radio to do a childhood uh, cancer rally, childhood cancer awareness rally. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that all this, you know, worked out that we could help these families, uh, that we're still doing it. I've even gotten to the point that I'm laying the groundwork that if I want to walk away and do something else, I have people that are in place that will take comedy for cancer over, uh, which I'm tremendously grateful for because my aspirations is to take this to the next level uh, and do like a United States tour, but doing, doing the shows for independent childhood cancer research. And that's important to me for the fact that we didn't find out to the second day of hospice there was an 11th hour surgery they could have done on my daughter unfortunately because of the lack of funding for pediatric cancers the doctors paid for their own trips to go to this conference at northwestern to find that out had that information been found out a week or two sooner it could have been a game changer and i don't want any other family to have to go through that if it's you know preventable in any way and the only way to do that is through independent research. I can't change the stance of the government or anything when it comes to that. But if we can get independent facilities to come up with cures, we uh, St. Jude is starting to make some groundbreaking developments on leukemia. Uh, you know, and that's the important thing to me. But at the same time, it's to keep our, you know, our core values together. And that's the monthly gifts for kids. That's the mentoring of families that's doing a comedy for cancer to help out families financially. And, you know, we've expanded that, you know, we don't turn our back on anybody, you know, because we're a pediatric cancer charity, our next show coming up on April 2nd, we're doing that for uh, three families. One is pediatric, two are adults, but they're very close to the president of my charity and her fiance. Um, And I hate when I say that our charity, not my charity. It's not mine. It's ours. Um, and like, you know, for an example, the show that you're on on May 27th in Clinton Township with us, that's for our, our presidents. Um, she lost her uncle to COVID. Uh, he has young kids, uh, young adults, you know, it's when you get 52 people in their twenties are a kid. Right. Um, and, uh, they, they lost another family member and, you know, sometimes we stretch it out to help and we're working on, uh, you know, eventually putting another website together, comedyticks.org for any any group that does a fundraiser. We want to give them a place to host their events and uh, have a website they can point people to. And then when we do shows that are not really about, you know, cancer, you know, we want to have something else. So 
Uh, I've, I've learned a lot through doing this. The other thing that's beneficial about this, and, and I'm sure when you've done fundraisers, you know, you've seen this yourself. It's uh, when I was when I was in hospice, a, a male nurse at the hospital would notice that I was on my laptop and I had Netflix open. And he said, it looks like you could laugh to keep from crying. And I said, yeah. And he's like, watch this. And it was Jim Gaffigan. I'd never watched Jim Gaffigan. Now I'm a huge Jim Gaffigan fan. Yeah. Um, but at our shows, it's, it's a night of normalcy for the parents when they can attend the event and they can forget about life for a while. Right. And, and that's why I like that. I'm, I'm glad that we took this road with the entertainment uh, and even with the concerts itself, you know, we, we also do uh, concerts, uh, you know, we've only done a couple of those. The comedy has been our main thing and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And people always ask me, you know, like, do you, you know, do you ever want to stop doing this? And I'm like, uh, I, I actually in a perfect world, I'd want us to not need us. I right. mean, then yes, that's the way I would love to stop under those circumstances. And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. I mean, you know, it's it, today is, you know, like tomorrow is, is going to be seven years until she went to hospice and it still hurts the same. It's, it's something that'll never change. I found my father dead when I was 13. That memory has been washed away by, you know, this tragedy. And that's not saying anything against my father. It just, it hits a little differently when it's your child, you know, it's when, when they're growing up, you can kiss them and, and make something go away. You can give them some cough syrup and stop that coughing with, with a brain tumor and cancer. There's, there's no bandaid to put on that. There's, you know, this is the most helpless feeling that you'll ever be in because there's nothing you can do to ease the pain of your child, you know, or save your child's life. I, I remember her going into surgery and I even said, uh, boy, I wish I could just take that tumor and put it in me. And she's like, dad, I don't want you to have it. Right. And, um, she was a once in a lifetime, uh, child as she really was. She cared more about others than, you know, herself. She never worried about herself. And she always tried to find the, the good in everybody. Like she would tell me stories about people at school and I'd be like, honey, they are an asshole. And she's like, no, they'll come around. And I'm like, okay, but you know, you can rehab the knee, you can rehab a back, but you can't rehab asshole. <laughs> she refused to listen to that, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, where we started and where we continue to go. I mean, it, it's, uh, she's the one that pushes us to do everything that we do. Well, first of all, I have to tell you that I am sorry for everything that you went through. Uh, you know, as we talked about before we started recording, you know, parents are not genetically set up to have to do what you had to do. So the strength that exists within this, within you, not only that you had to face it, but that you also were able to uh, keep it together and keep it moving forward uh is a testament to to the strength that you have as a person uh but it also is a testament to the strength that i think and i'm nobody but i think yeah. that 
I think that she probably was able even subconsciously to put some of her strength on you. Oh, definitely. Before her clock ran out, you know, I mean, it's, you know, like I said, parents aren't designed, you know, but kids aren't designed to necessarily go through that either. You know, um, I think that cancer is, is a horrible plague that exists within human nature. Uh, but uh, you know, for anybody that's in a position to have to watch somebody that they created fight a battle that they're not even old enough to necessarily have to be in that fight yet. That's yeah. I, I, I can't even begin to understand how taxing that has to be. So the fact that you and your group are in a position to even listen, even if it's an hour and a half to, to take, those people and their family and their extended family and put them in a position where they can laugh their ass off about everything else. Yeah. I can't imagine how powerful it is to just have that moment where real, you know, like real life just takes a back seat for a minute, you know? It's the show we did in Port Huron, the uh, the young man that's battling leukemia. His mom told me that that was like the most interactive he was with people. He was having such a good time and uh, she didn't know. But then we, we ended up staying overnight in a, a hotel in town. And we went Val and I went to breakfast the next morning, but she didn't know this, but he was in the restaurant with his dad and he's yelling across the restaurant, all smiling. Hey, JD. Then he comes over and starts talking. And uh, it's sometimes, you know, it's just it's moments like that. um, That's so rewarding for doing this. I I was talking to our city treasurer, Lori, that's helping us with a show we have, you know, coming up on April 2nd. And uh, my doctor gets on me all this time about not living in the moment. You know, when you have a soul, like the show behind it's doing well on ticket sales. But, you know, that show is kind of slow out of the gate. Mm -hmm. You know, and I said, you know, it's there's a difference from the person that ran wrestling shows that was just running shows to the person that's doing it for a charity and for families. I go, you run a wrestling show, you lose three, four hundred dollars, you have a bad gate, crowd doesn't show up, whatever the excuse is, you just lost money. I said, but with what we do, you know, it's like we're letting down the people we're doing the show for if we don't deliver that crowd. Because without the crowd, there's, you know, there isn't the money. You know, there's the the trickle down of everything that goes on. We have the raffle baskets. Um, you know, we have like a couple items for our next show that Darren McCarty signed, uh, which is just crazy in this world. Again, you know, meeting great people from after one of the biggest tragedies of your life. I mean, it's the, you know, oh my God, there's Darren McCarty, one of my favorite Red Wings. Now I see him, you know, like once, twice a month and, you know, it's so cool, but you know, it, there is a lot of pressure in doing this and, it's like before, you know, we pass this on to, uh, and I fully, fully believe in the president of our charity 
uh, could take the ball and run with this. But, you know, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes and a lot of, and you know this from running shows yourself, the hours and the time that you commit to promoting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the unseen things that, you know, a lot of people think, you know, hey, you throw a banner up and 300 people magically appear. And, uh, you know, the news is going to bend over backwards to tell your story and promote the show. And that doesn't always happen. Um, you know, I know we have some friends in the media that, you know, to get the word out there the best they can. Uh, Poor Huron was a show. I think I even talked to you about it when we attempted to do the podcast, but we talked for three hours mm-hmm. instead. <laughs> was uh, It was a show I was worried about. And in the 11th hour, the news there did a story on it. And, and, you know, it sold out, you know, but it was one of those things going into the show, like, man, am I only going to give this family 500? And, uh, you know, and this one thing is we do at these shows is we, you know, we present the money on stage. They're not waiting to get anything. You know, we get, uh, you know, two months, you know, two drops a month from the ticket account that goes into a bank account. And then after overheads taken out and, you know, which there is, there's printing, you know, obviously, um, you know, we're using comedians on a prime night. A lot of them give us great deals. Uh, you know, there's money that comes out, but, you know, they're going to leave that night with all the money we raised from the raffles and all the profits from ticket sales. And, you know, you, you want that envelope to be heavy, you know, you right. want that, <laughs> you want that number to be big and it's not something to be braggadocious about. It's because you live this. If we, you know, in our situation, had I not bought this house when the market crashed in 2009 for 18 grand, I don't know what we would have did 27 days in hospice. Right. You know, it, it, and, you know, people don't understand that, that, you know, when your child's facing the end of life, you know, it's, there's things you don't even, you know, when do you think of getting a, a, a casket for your child? When do you think of contacting a funeral home? We were three weeks in the hospice. We hadn't even set anything up yet. Right. Cause it's just not something a parent normally does. And for us, it was, Oh man, it, that was the one that I think really put me in, you know, we're here. I mean, the words of the doctor, the, the night my daughter was taped, rushed to the hospital uh, and they gave her two to three hours to live and it ended up being 27 days, but she was like, dad, we're here. And, you know, you're, you're conditioned as a parent, not to believe that something like this can happen. But it was when the social worker hit me with the, have you made funeral arrangements? Have you been in contact with a funeral home? It, it became like really real at that point. Yeah. And, you know, because you're always holding on to hope and, you know, there wasn't any there. I mean, looking back now and looking at the scans and how bad the tumor grew and the damage it did to, to her brain. Uh, but you know again that that situation with the child what makes it different is their bodies are so strong you know mm-hmm. it, it's not like mine i beat the hell out of mine mine's an old cordoba that takes 10 minutes to warm up before right. it can go anywhere <laughs> and you know that's the other reason you're talking 23 days of perfect vitals but you know here's your child that's not going to wake up and that made it harder than anything because you're trying to hold on hope because there is no signs on those machines that anything's wrong. And uh, looking back now, 
I remember one of the first suggestions were to turn that machine off so you didn't have to see it. And, uh, and when I have to unfortunately mentor with some families in that situation, I'm, you know, I said, the things like that will make it worse. Uh, it can't really be more worse than it is. Your child's going to die, but you know, you, you have this false sense of hope, you know, you want to believe in a miracle and, um, it, it really, it, it also really tests your faith too. Yeah. Well, and I got to believe, uh, and I'm going to make this statement, but I'm going to preface it by, I'm not trying to upset you. I got to imagine that there's at least some anger that goes with that too. Yeah. Yeah, you you know, you're not upsetting me. It's totally you're going through the stages of grief, but while the person's still technically alive, uh, I slashed out at a social worker because she, you know she made a comment. Don't worry, she'll be in a better place. And I'm like, wow, because I thought a better place would be her at home playing yeah. her favorite video games yeah. and watching her favorite comedy comedians on YouTube, and. You know, the social worker apologized after the fact and goes, you know, now that I, I hear myself saying it, I can sound how, you know, I, I can understand how that would come off as insensitive. And uh, but that was a teaching lesson for me, too. You know, it's that you're going to go through those stages and you have to be very careful when you're talking to families, uh, you know, on what you say. And a lot of times it's more about you just want to be heard you know, the family, you know, so you, you, you sit there and, you know, and it, it's so, it's so different because I've mentored both childhood cancer families and adults. And with the kids, the hardest part about dealing with when you're talking with kids that, you know, that are terminal is they don't want you to know they are. So they will talk about what they're going to be when they're an adult but yet they're 12 years old and you know, that's not going to happen. And an adult will be more about why me, how could this happen? And what I've noticed, and, and, and I understand that, you know, we, we, we live, you know, adults have been around a while. They live a life and they eventually get to the point that they fear death. Um, child, children are innocent. They don't think about dying. It, the, you know, that never comes across their mind. You know, what, what happens after death? You know, as, as we get older, you know, sometimes that enters your mind. And uh, I heard a great saying the other day, when you finally admit that you can fear death, you'll start to begin living. Right. And that is that it is that is true. But I've, I've noticed with most of the kids that we've worked with, and uh, in seven years, uh, you know, and people, you know, childhood cancer is rare. No, it's not. Seven years that we've done the charity, we've lost 80% of the kids we've worked with. Yeah. Uh, I've had to take checks to funeral homes that, and uh, we unfortunately had a child pass away 30 days before, you know, we were doing the show to help the family out financially. And two months before that, I was, I was checking on him at ringside at one of our wrestling shows that we did at what used to be the Cobo arena, but one of the halls, um, uh, my friend Malcolm was able to bring wrestling back to Cobo, which was awesome. And, you know, getting to see him 
um, you know, enjoying himself and, and forgetting about what he was dealing with at the time, you know, to two months later, here you are at a funeral home taking a check to the family. Just it, you know, just shows, you know, what we do and, and what we have to deal with. You know, it's when we do gifts in the hospital and somebody goes for the first time, we tell them, you know, there's obvious rules. Um, don't stare, don't take pictures. And whatever you do, don't cry. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the hospitals that we've gone to regularly, there's a long stretch of hallway between the elevator and the parking garage. And there's been a lot of tears from myself and other board members that we've shed on that I walk. Bet. I bet. And it's, uh, you know, but these kids are like, they worry about you. They don't you know, they worry about their parents. They worry about their siblings. I I remember my son ran into my daughter's room one night and just yelled out, you know, I I don't want you to die. And uh, before me or my wife could get in the room, my daughter had grabbed them and just hugged them. And to me, that was the, the greatest strength of all that, you know, for her, that's probably the first time she was confronted with those words and she immediately went to looking out for him her little brother and um not me i broke down and had to go back downstairs and just hide from it i i i used to have a certain spot in my basement was my crying spot just uh because you know you're always trying to keep that brave face in front of your child and uh that that was probably the hardest part well, because you know, they're 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 in a different mindset, you know. Like you said, when we reach a certain age, we can wrap our heads around uh, the fact that you know time is what it is. But when they're twelve, fourteen, even maybe sixteen, yeah, they 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 don't understand. I don't want to say they don't understand because I think you know a lot of times we give less credit to kids than what we should as far as their level of understanding but yeah they're in a different position because they understand i think what they're up against but they also understand what everybody else is up against at the same time and yeah the level of strength that that um exudes within them because not only are because regardless of of how they express it outside they still got to have some internal thoughts about holy shit you know uh but to spend the majority of their time trying to reassure everybody else in their lives that everything is going to be okay uh you know, I don't know that hum- humans, I don't know that adults, and especially as the older they get, I don't know that they have that same level of resilience, you know? No. Because um, they can understand th- their own mortality a little bit more. Um, and like you said, they question, uh, why is this happening to me? Why is this? Uh, yeah. And, and you're questioning, uh, you know, afterlife thoughts, and, yeah, you know, thinking of everything you're going to miss, uh, you know, is it, do you fear death or do you fear what you're going to miss and who you're going to miss? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's, you know, that, that plays into it. And with, um, 
you know, with, with, with children, I, it's, it's, it is weird because yeah, they, they're protecting everybody around them. And even if they know, you know, they still play it like you don't. And it's like, it's a mechanism to protect you. I, I know I have a sports forum and uh, I've had it since 2007. And when my, when uh, my daughter was diagnosed, first thing I did is I announced to everybody, Hey, we had a good run, uh, but I need to focus on this. And I shut it down. And about two days went by and I'm walking by our daughter's room and she's on her laptop and just laughing and giggling away like nothing's bothering her. And she looked at me and she's like, why aren't you on your site? And I go, I just figured, you know, we need to focus on getting you better. And I'd stop doing it. She's like, why would you stop doing something you enjoy because of cancer? I'm like, wow. Yeah, and I went back and I emailed everybody and I go, well, we're putting a band back together uh, because she was right. The cancer changed her appearance. It didn't change her. Right. I mean, from the beginning of the fight uh, to the end, we you know, with kids, we 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 never ever say they lost the battle with cancer. First off, they're in a battle that they didn't sign up for. Right. They're in a battle that they're unarmed. Uh, we've been conditioned and uh, believe that they gained, they won their wings. Uh, we didn't have the proper treatments to save them. Um, we didn't, you know, there wasn't enough medication out there, or the proper treatments or surgeries uh, to save their life. And children battle different than adults. Very rarely will a child make the call to tap out and say, I'm done. They'll continue to go through treatment knowing that, knowing where it's headed. Um, she was never like that. It never, she listened to her Gabrielle Glacius CD while she was in radiation. And uh, I remember the doctors telling us that, that she was like the only child that was in that you know thing laughing hysterically. And uh, I remember telling Fluffy that, and at the time she uh, she was done with radiation. I said, yeah, her last two, she uh, she couldn't do it because it kept skipping. He's like, oh, I'm going to replace that CD. I'm like, no, it's cool, bro. Their player was ghetto. And then he started laughing. She's like, oh, my God, you made Gabrielle laugh. She wouldn't even call him Fluffy because she thought that was making fun of him. That was <laughs> That's the other thing thing i mean again how you know the kind of person she was she goes oh they're 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 making jokes because of his weight i'm like honey he calls himself that he even signed this to you with fluffy on it i go it's a term of endearment for him i go now me somebody yells lard ass that's you know it's not my comic or wrestling (laughs) name (laughs) (laughs) as somebody being very descriptive yeah, uh, obviously I've not progressed to the point where I've crossed paths with Gabriel, but everybody that I've ever spoken to that's ever crossed paths with him, I've never heard a bad word spoken about him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and just the simple fact that, that he took, in the grand scheme of things, it's not huge, but he took that 20 minutes to be completely with her. Yeah. 
outside of everything else, especially at the level that he's at, you know, where, you know, you got a guy that's such a mega star that can sell out 25, 30,000 seats in an yeah. arena. Uh, I mean, those people don't come along very often, especially in the comedy game. Yeah. And for that person to still be so connected with her, even in that 20 minute time frame, that, that just screams what kind of a quality person at his soul that he really is. Yeah, it, it's it speaks volumes because, um, you know, when something like that happens, you know, you have a brush with a celebrity, uh, you know, and in this day and age, everybody's going to run the social media and post their pictures with it. Hell, I did it a few weeks ago with Chris Porter because he, he's one of my favorites that, you know, I enjoy watching. And um, but in her situation, it was us posting on social media and her staring at her phone the next day at the selfies that they took on her phone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I was able to get some of those, uh, you know, because it was such a special moment because he was just like, you know, noticed that she was trying to do a selfie and then he took over her phone and he did it. And, uh, what he did in those 20 minutes is, uh, you know, we didn't know at the time that, you know, eight days later we'd be rushing to the hospital and heading towards end of life, you know, with the, the 27 days in hospice. But he created the greatest day of her life, the best day of her life. And had she survived, that moment would have lived with her the rest of her life. And because he did an act of kindness, you know, it was a game changer. And it's done more than that. Uh, our monthly gift is called the Best Day Award. And it was inspired with that day and that conversation that I have with my daughter. And we've given out over 600 gifts, uh, you know, thanks to, uh, you know, Gabrielle inspiring that. Wow. And uh, because it taught me a lesson that day that, you know, moments uh, can create magic. And, you know, sometimes that one kind gesture may be the last kind gesture a person ever witnesses. And uh, we've actually, you know, when you do them in person, they mean, you know, they mean the world to you because, you know, you're there in that moment. And you can see somebody in a serious situation finally smile, um, you know, but it's also at the same time when you walk away, you know, you kind of know in some situations you're probably not going to see that child again and it gets very emotional. Right. And then, you know, you can't help but to get attached to the children that we work with. Uh, but then even when we send them out of state, just getting that picture and seeing that smile and uh, it's just it's priceless. I mean, everybody should do it. I, I there was a lady out of New York that contacted me a couple years ago, apologizing. She had lost her son and she goes, yeah, I do this best day gift. And I, you know, I just found out that you had already been doing it. And I go, I don't care. I hope the other 48 states hop on board. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I wish sometimes good behavior was contagious. <laughs> We'd be in a better world. Well, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head, my, my head around what I want to say. Um, because first of all, I have to commend your daughter's 
strength, not only for herself, but for everyone else in her life at the same time. Uh, but I also, I have to commend your strength too, given the fact that, again, like we talked about a little bit ago, you know, parents aren't designed to do this. And the fact that you've, and I'm sure, without getting into it, I'm sure that you have your good days and your bad days. Oh, yeah. Um, but the fact that you're able to still find enough positivity in, whether it's in your life because she was there or because she taught you how to have it in the time frame that it existed, the fact that you've been able to channel that and probably more often than not unknowingly know that you've been able to pass that on to other people going through the immense struggle that they're going through. I, I, yeah. I think that has to, that can't be unspoken about JD. Like, you know, it takes a, a strong person to be able to not only fight through what, what you had to fight through, but then to come out on the other side and say, even if it's for five minutes, I got to, you know, at least provide other people with the ability to just, even if it's just step away for five minutes and laugh about something else. Oh yeah. No, it's, um, yeah, no, I, I always say that, you know, it wasn't just my daughter. It was my best friend and my hero. I mean, she, you know, what she went through and she made me a better person, um, through watching her and seeing life through her eyes. Um, and, uh, you know, a thing, uh, you know, Gabriel told us, and, and I believe he said it in a special, and he was so right about this, and uh, it really rang a bell. Um, it's not the amount of years you live. It's the living, you know, that you do in the time that you have. Right. And uh, she lived more, she laughed more, and she loved more in 13 years than some 80-year-old people have on this planet. Yeah. And, uh, it's a, it's a once in a, you know, it's a once in a lifetime, um, you know, you know, child that you have that can inspire you to get out of bed and, you know, do this. Yeah. There's still, there's bad days. I mean, of course there is. I, I wouldn't watch the office 15 times if there wasn't, you know, but I always find my release to, you know, to deal with it. it it's a wound that time will never heal. Right. Um, it just the, the, the years get longer, but the memories still stay fresh. There's times that I've walked around my house, looked up in the sky and like my daughter's dead. Um, I've been in conversations with complete strangers, you know, outside of a comedy show. Uh, it could even be at a wrestling show. And it's a fan that, you know, doesn't know my story, but they went to my shows back in the day and they're catching up and like, yeah, I haven't seen you in forever. So, you know, how many kids do you have? And that I have to stop and think about that. Right. You know, it's like my reaction is to say two, you know, and, and that is the answer. I'm yeah, the I father of two children and, and one's just not with me. 
But it doesn't take away the fact that, you know, I, I, I had a daughter and, um, uh, and I, and I'll, and I'll tell you this, and I haven't shared it with a lot of people. Uh, one of the things that we went through and it's normal to go through this. Um, and I've heard this with a lot of families was we had decided to have two kids. And, uh, you know, once I had a son that, you know, we were out of the kid game and uh, I wanted to have a son to name after my father. Like I said earlier, I followed my father down when I was 13 and I wanted to honor him and, uh, you know, keep the name alive. And, uh, but we had talks about what if, you know, we could reverse my wife's procedure and, and, uh, you know, try to have another daughter. And, uh, I just, I couldn't do it. I, I, yeah. I thought, nope, I'm going to set the bar too high. Um, but you know, if, if the right situation came across with adoption, I, you know, I feel like I missed out on some great years of, you know, being a, a father to a daughter. Uh, the president of our charity is, is going to get married in uh, September of uh, 2023. And uh, she asked me about songs I like. And, uh, you know, I don't care who giggles about it, but Neil Diamond, I've seen him when I was 13 and never missed a tour until my daughter was in hospice. Um, my daughter's last concert was uh, Barry Manilow. And uh, I Am Your Child plays on her page on her website, uh, permission from Manilow's group to do it, which I, I appreciate a lot from them. Uh, during that song at the palace, she, I was pointing down to an older lady and her daughter and the daughter grabbing her mom when the song began. And next thing I know, my daughter throws her arms around my neck. But, um, but the, the president of our charity, Jenna had, you know, asked like certain, you know, songs like to dance to. And uh, after I had given her a couple ideas, uh, she goes, well, I just want to let you know that when I get married, I'm a, Wow, this one, it's a little, this is the one that's going to break me. And when I get married, I want you to do a daddy daughter dance with me because you will not get that opportunity. Oh. And uh, that means the world to me because she's the president of our charity because I've told her since the day I met her, this is who my daughter would have grew up to be. Uh, she is the most sweetest, kind, funniest person you have ever met in your life. And she is so amazing. Um, she got ordained. She, she was able to uh, do the service to marry her father uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's just like she, she's another moment creator. And uh, I, I mean, to think that deeply, um, you know, that you have a friendship like that, that somebody would say that to you. It, it meant the world to me. And it. Yeah. And it's crazy because it comes out of left field sometimes because when we all get together, we're clowns. Um, when we were doing wrestling up in Standish, we're ending up staying up to four or five o'clock in the morning, goofing and drinking and, you know, having the times of our lives. But it was in one of those moments in Standish when she told me that. And I just went in the room and cried just because it is, 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 you know, as time goes on, it's, you know, those milestones, you know, when she, when she would have been 18, you know, she would have been graduating. And, uh, you know, I remember saying to my son one day, I'm like, this is when we were supposed to not see her for a while. Cause she was going to go off to college. Um, unlike me, she excelled at school. 
uh, you know, then you, you look at uh, this July, she would have been 21. And uh, we're working on, uh, she loved the Minions. So to do something for her birthday, I'm going to try to rent a theater for a bunch of kids that are battling cancer so they can see the new Minions movie. And, uh, and it gave me a good excuse to be there, too. Sure. Because that's what we did her first birthday after she was gone. We did a Minions party at Royal Oak Beaumont for the pediatric unit. And that was uh, that was just awesome to be able to, you know, to one night to put smiles on 30 faces. I mean, it was uh, that's a game changer. I, I, I just got to say that if anybody watches what we do, because I, I get this all the time. It shows like, is there any way that they can help? I'm like, yeah, get on board with this, you know, get out there and promote get out there and, and uh, raise awareness for childhood cancer i mean anybody can be a game changer you just you know you got to get in the game right. and uh and you know when you say that you also got a preference with you know what i didn't know shit about childhood cancer until my daughter had it and only then did i become educated and now my goal is to educate people and hopefully they don't have to go down that same road, but just for some way, somehow that they can help raise awareness and they can make a difference. Uh, believe me, no family should go through what we go through. The, every holiday, every birthday, it's never going to be the same. It never gets better. Um, the only thing you can do is process it, deal with it, and know it's your new normal and it's part of your life. And I have people that have lost children who are now with us on this mission um, because they realize that giving back at least helps them carry on the legacy of their child. Uh, we do a Christmas program for the, the young man that I talked about taking to the wrestling show because that's what he was about. Uh, he was in the hospital one Christmas and uh, he left his gifts behind because he got to go home and said, leave them for the kids that you know, can't go home for Christmas. And then when he was in the hospital um, fighting for his life, it was in December, Mojo in the morning did a breaking and entering. And to honor him, uh, they brought gifts for a lot of kids that were on a pediatric unit. Wow. And uh, because they know that's what it was. And then before our, uh, well, at the funeral home, his grandma has said to me that this is, you know, after this is over with, they're going to forget his name. And I announced that night at the show. I said, no, they won't. Uh, I said, we're going to do the torn toy chest and, you know, give out gifts for kids, you know, bat you know, battling cancer. And uh, so we, we did that. And then we, you know, the pandemic came along. So then we adopted a couple of families and paid for their Christmas uh, to keep his memory alive. And it's, uh, you know, it's in my lifetime, you know, I started working in professional wrestling when I was 14 and uh, every kid's dream and you know 16 now i'm in the business and you know actually doing stuff and by 18 i'm running my own promotion and you know i went to work with uh, i was going to go to work with wcw and had i you know if i did we wouldn't be talking right now i would have moved to atlanta and never met my wife i ended up doing a show at the ima when the wcw when eric bischoff got fired and my contract wasn't signed uh, I wanted to give everybody a big arena show and we did a cross promotion with the hockey team. Dan to be seven was late and I ended up sitting at a table next to my wife and that's how we met. Um, but I went through a lot in my life, uh, losing my father, 
Um, you know, like I said, doing a professional wrestling, you know, sitting at a table with Ric Flair and Arn Anderson and, and Gene Oakland and Bobby the Brain Heenan and standing behind me is Sting and Lex Luger. And just, you know, it's like oh, just anybody would have dreamed to been part of that party, um, you know, to, to live that life. And, I, and then when people ask me, like, well, what's the best part of your life? And I'm like, this, this, this charity and, and what we do. Um, you know, I know that, you know, in reality, we're putting band-aids on bullet holes, but they're band-aids that are needed until we can find a better way right. and, you know, have uh, happy endings, you know, for these young warriors and, uh, you know, but this to me is, the, you know, this is my Mount Everest. So this is my life. I mean, this is my Mount Rushmore moment is I would put this at the top of it. Uh, anything else I did didn't matter until this. I mean, being a dad um, is up on that Mount Rushmore. And then, you know, this charity's work and the people I've met along the way yourself. And um, if I started naming comedians, I'd miss somebody and I'd never hear the end of it. Uh, <laughs> except for Steve Lind. I have to mention Steve Lind, the record holder for being on the most shows. He'll be on number eight, April 23rd. Yeah. <laughs> well that's a joke with our board chat i have i have a man crush on steve Wynn, so <laughs> well he is a sexy son of a bitch so. yeah he is he's a handsome devil <laughs> yeah. i think he's older than both of us i don't know yeah but, you know, to tell. he uh, has you hair know, you know. in the uh in the in the female world they would call him a cougar but i don't know necessarily what the uh <laughs> I, I don't know what the uh, the translation is over to the male side. I guess I'm not quite as hip to the game as I need to be. But yeah, I got to be careful. I always step on my tongue around Steve Lynn. I'm probably going to introduce him as a cougar now. <laughs> and well, then uh, I'm glad and Paulo, part of that. <laughs> yeah, Paulo, Paulo and uh, Tanya Murray, they're in uh, Tim Finko. They're becoming clubhouse leaders on the chase and uh you know it's just it's you know it's weird how shows when you book them sometimes it's just like magic of putting some people together yeah um you know i we've been blessed i mean i don't think i've ever walked away from a show and went this stunk now in wrestling <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh boy <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah quite a few of those you know the weird thing about that was is i is as i thought the show would stink and the crowd loved it and, um, you know, and then when I thought it was good, well, yeah, the crowd would beg to differ. Yeah, it's funny how they tend to equalize you out a little bit, you know. Yeah, you know, and the other thing, too, is like, you know, in wrestling, we call it fans. And, and XICW, the, the company I'm blessed to work with, with Malcolm Monroe, um, we call them family. And with County for Cancer, we call the people that support us. You know, we, we have a regular group that comes to all, almost all the shows uh, you know if we stretch it too far they're probably not going to go like Lapeer and Tecumseh uh, but you know we we call them family and what helps with I, I think when it's it's booking people multiple times is you know we listen to that feedback mm -hmm. um, you know people let us know you know who they like and um, you know if, if they don't like somebody or whatever they also let us know I mean I've only had one complaint it was about Steve <laughs> and uh it was a flint joke and we were really close to flint so oh, okay yeah and so i just you know, i'm sorry you're gonna kind of like kind of like a douche but i'm like get over it right <laughs> i mean it's one joke in a two-hour comedy show 
I go, did you walk out? Would you like a refund? No, I stayed. It just made me uncomfortable. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You didn't seem too uncomfortable when I was cracking fat and bald jokes about myself. (laughs) Yeah. Because when you're like, all right, Karen, just go back over there and sit down. (laughs) (laughs) Karen. Oh, God. I feel sorry for the good people named Karen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that is. Hey, but, you, you know, know what's, you know hey you know chad you gotta work out every day we both had to do this to live to be like 110 and and there'll be zero karens yeah nobody's gonna name name their kid that well you know uh here's the craziest bullshit on the planet i completely disagree with it but you know what the male version of karen is what's that chad oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh, 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 oh. that stinks yeah yeah it stings me it stings me quite a bit because i'm not the i'm not the let me talk to your manager kind of guy you know you know i mean i don't know how they came up with that one (laughs) i don't know either but you're the second chad i've met my entire life (laughs) well but you know i'll be honest with you you know i grew up in the thumb you know small farm towns but you know even when i hear my name itself i'm like god that just sounds like such a fucking frat boy you know (laughs) Like the guy wearing a fucking polo sweater. Like, send the bitches upstairs, you know. <laughs> that is a tag team. They're called the fraternity. And it's uh, it's close. His name's Channy. Yeah. Like, yeah. I can see where you're coming from. <laughs> and it, yeah. gets, it gets some heat. And it gets some the nerd chants and stuff like that. But, you know, <laughs> not that I'm calling you a nerd. Um, yeah, that's crazy. I don't even know how they come up with Chad. I, yeah. I like how some names have been changed, though. Like, you don't use the short version of Richard anymore. Yeah. Um, and I see why, because my son laughs hysterically when he hears somebody's <laughs> name, you know, that yeah. way. Like, it's just drop Dick Van Dyke and he's in tears. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, oh, that's a twofer. I'm like, <laughs> hey, yeah. <laughs> uh, man was a genius, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Eddie, Eddie peaked at this stage of his life though who knows how it would have went you know richard yeah, i like dropping stuff like that so people are like how the hell old is this guy yeah richard <laughs> richard van dyke doesn't have the same heat behind it as dick van dyke does. no 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 it's like that gaffigan bit kevin bacon's a star because his last name's bacon yeah i mean <laughs> richard van dyke no that's not a star yeah Vince McMahon would have changed his name in wrestling in a second. Oh, from there's. What's it? I mean, come on, the legendary Dick the Bruiser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vince McMahon would have said, "Come on in and talk to my office," and then he just whispered to his secretary, "Get the team to work on the name change right now, please." Yeah, <laughs> he would have before he even decided to hire him. He would have already been working on that. <laughs> yeah, he's famous for that. He's uh. It seems it appears that he's gone back to his 80s name generation uh, generator. Mm. He's got uh, the son of, of Rick Steiner, the nephew of Scott Steiner, the famous tag team from Michigan, the Steiner brothers. And his name is Bron Breaker. Wow. And doesn't that scream 80s rock guy? Yeah, like I can almost hear a poison song playing in the background yeah. right now. And and the funny thing is he totally is built like his dad and sounds like his uncle. And it's like the crowd even does like the dog chants like they did for his dad. It's like wow. you're not fooling anybody. We know who you are. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like the stretch he did with Kurt Henning's name. Uh yeah, you'll be Curtis Axel. 
Right. It's like, why didn't you just call him Kurt Henning Jr.? Right. <laughs> but allegedly, Braun Breaker said he wanted to make a name on his own. So I can respect that's, that. You know. Yeah. No, I get it. It's um, you know, like being the son of Dusty Rhodes, you're trying to get out of that shadow. Yeah. I don't know that Gold Dust was the best choice, but. <laughs> And uh, yeah, but and then uh, Cody, he had to leave WWE to reinvent himself because he got yeah. stuck with one of those painted up gimmicks. Yep. Um, but it's tough to be second generation. You know, they always expect you to, you know, be the same as the dad or, you know, I mean, geez, yeah. the pressure that it is to be Ric Flair's kid. Yeah. And uh, you're a girl. Yeah. And, you I know, you're being. That. Yeah. And she's excelling at it. My God, I, I don't know. I think she's already had 11 world championships. Hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I oh, wouldn't she, wish that on it. Is she also a kiss stealing, wheeling, dealing son of a gun? Or Oh, yeah. She she has a totally, like, a little bit more rocking 2001 theme. Um, the whole woo stuff. Yeah. You know, the arrogance. Um, she's one that I, you know, they've tried to turn her uh, baby face, but it doesn't stick. It's just not the cards. Yeah. No, no. She, she has that, uh, that heels body language, I yeah. guess, for lack of better words. Yeah. Uh, some people can pull turns off well. Some, you know, there's always good bad guys and good, good guys. And there's very few that can be both. Right. Uh, it's easier to be a bad guy, though. So if anybody's listening to this, you want to get into wrestling, try to be a bad guy. It's easier to make fun <laughs> of the crowd. <laughs> Trust me. It's like literally one of my old favorite one was to go up to a guy that was with a heavy set woman that was talking crap to me. And I said, why don't you get in a ring right now and we'll fight it out. And loser goes home with your pig. And, uh, <laughs> that would get you some booze and then there yeah. was a time in river rouge you know i got in a ring and started talking like a baby face like yeah it's so great to be in river rouge tonight they're all like yeah and i go i couldn't find the place i was driving down 75 i got off at a gas station nice man there told me how i'd find this building he said drive 75 south do you smell it <laughs> and uh, at that point things started getting thrown in the ring yeah or you could have went you know, I asked the gas station guy, hey, can you tell me how to get to River Rouge? And he looked right at me in the eyes. And he's like, why? <laughs> <laughs> Do you that also was awesome. Yeah. That was, now, keep this in mind, like literally five minutes before I went to the ring, I was told not to say that about the town right? Uh, because they get really upset. Uh, so then we come back there a month later. And again, now I'm told five times not to talk about the smell of the town or anything close to it. And then I go out to the ring and I start again with kissing their butts and then turn it into, oh, by the way, since I seen you last time, I was hired by the state of Michigan to give it an enema and here's where I'm shoving the hose. <laughs> and uh, that night, an old lady tried to stab me with a pencil on the way back to the locker room. So that was fun. Sure. Um, yeah, there's nothing better than getting flipped off by an 80-year-old person. <laughs> well, you haven't a... lit. Oh, I was doing traffic for the uh, COVID clinic at our city hall, and I had to yell to everybody else on the team that was out there that day. I go, hey, guys, they popped my cherries. That old lady right there just flipped me off. And uh, she thought she was in trouble. I was going to take a picture of her to put it on Facebook. <laughs> I was going to be like, yeah, this is uh, this is the benefits of work in traffic. When, you know, somebody's yelling at you, why do I have to go this way? Same reason I'm standing out here at 10 degrees. Yeah. 
and uh, they don't make a lot of neon stuff that's like you know good for winter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like walking into your friend at the police department and go, "Hey, breathing traffic cone, how are you today?" <laughs> <laughs> no, but we respect what you do. <laughs> Thanks for coming out at three a.m. and getting snowed on. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we're excited. I, I'm glad you had me on here, and I can't wait to work with you on May 27th as a premier yeah. care center in Clinton Township. Cheap plug. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it should be a good night. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's it's gonna be. Yeah, I'm really I'm really excited for uh, starting to do this this new tour built around bringing in a lot of new faces. Um, you know, working with people. The one thing that I always say about comedy and wrestling that they run parallel is the networking. Um, you can run into a comedian and they'll instantly tell you two or three people that, oh, you should, you know, you should work with this comedian. You should work. And then, you know, you look them up and it's like, hey, if you're going to, if you're going to endorse somebody, they're 99.9% going to be good. Right. And it's just like that in wrestling. Your reputation's everything. You know, you're not going to bring a crappy worker uh, in on your name. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, it's like if we find somebody that's a total hack and they're like, uh, yeah, I know Chad. And I'd be like, first one, first message would be to me to you. <laughs> Chad, you know this guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, that's he happened. Said you th- yeah, yeah that, no, that's I know happened it has. Before. Yeah. yeah, I've heard people talk about it. It happens in wrestling, too. Uh, there was a guy a few weeks ago that everybody on the show assumed he was with somebody else. And wow. he wasn't. He went in the locker room put on gear and just went out to the ring and and luckily got out of the building before he got his ass kicked (laughs) but yeah it happens where somebody will show up and be like yeah i'm a friend of so-and-so and And they told me yeah i should come here to get booked and then you know we're messaging that person like yeah i've never heard of that dude (laughs) yeah i've I've definitely had that hey so-and-so said that you can vouch for him what yeah (laughs) wait a minute uh, one time I've worked with that guy for five minutes ever. Like, really? You know? Yeah. I, I had somebody do that to me saying they had been on one of our shows and I had to go back through every flyer. And I'm like, this person was never on my show. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I go and and the reason why is cause I seen him and I'm like, was he trying not to be funny? Like that's his character. Like, yeah. you know, how long can I make a crowd not laugh? And I was like, and then, you know, you hear them couple like, uh-huh, we feel sorry for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the name dropping thing's funny because, uh, and, and uh, God, I hate this because, you know, it's a character name on a show. Their first name's Mary, but play Chloe on 24. Okay. And uh, just interacting with her on Twitter. And, and she was talking about her comedy tour. And I was mentioning about, like, we'd like to bring her in eventually, you know, at some point, maybe for a comedy for cancer. And then I, I felt like I had to add that, you know, Mike Stanley can vouch for you. And and, and then I was like, well, why did I post that? Like, yeah. she's on a national tour. And I'm like, oh, well, Mike Stanley can vouch for you. You know, she's from, she's originally from Trenton. You know that, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's funny because I was a huge fan of 24 and, uh, it's one of those things you overlook that Chloe comes into the show later. Like you just assumed she was there from day one. She wasn't. And she had to actually watch a couple episodes to audition for a part and then to see what, you know, 
24 without Kiefer and Chloe just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it's the same so, thing with uh, Breaking Bad, you know. Uh, uh, oh, shit. Bob Odenkirk, who played Saul Goodman. Yeah. They didn't bring him in at first. Uh, and he, I watched a, a video where he was like, I had never seen it before. I was, I was always, I'd always been a comic and there was a sketch show that he did and the writers really liked him. So they asked him to come in and interview for that position. And he's like, I had to watch kind of uh, three or four episodes of the show. So I under, understood what it was about first. And, uh, obviously he took that character to epic proportions because they created a spinoff for it, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, like weird ones I heard was uh, Bubbles from the Trailer Park Boys. When they first started filming it, he was doing the music for the show. Yeah. And then he just started doing the character as a goof while they were on a break. And they're like, yeah, we got to write this guy in. Well, well it's I think, like, uh, 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 I mean, huge, me- you know, he's old now, but he's a huge megastar. Um, God, why is his name skipping my, uh, I can see his face, Harrison Ford. Yeah, you know, when when uh, they started filming the first Star Wars, he was just a, uh, uh, he was a uh, a construction guy in the set. Wow! And, uh, boom. I mean, I think he had taken some acting lessons and probably done a little bit here or there. But uh, George Lucas was like, "Hey, you, come here for a minute." And the same can be said about uh, Arlie Army for his uh, you know over the top performance uh, as the drill sergeant in. Full Metal Jacket. Oh, yeah. He was hired as a creative consultant to work with whoever they had as the original actor. And he was so much better that uh, Kruberg was like, uh, how about we just have you do this? And yeah. Like 60, I think 60% of his lines during all of the boot camp scenes are all ad-libbed. He just made it up as he went. Oh, man. Yeah, I heard that about Sean William Scott when he auditioned for American Pie. He literally come to his Home Depot apron on and he just started throwing the words out that eventually became, you know, famous for Stifler saying. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the other one was uh, the show Justified, that the guy that played Boyd Crowder did such a great job that he was supposed to be whacked like early in it, like maybe even like the first one or two episodes. And I believe in the Elmore Leonard books that it was based on that that character dies early. Yeah. But it was such an, it was getting such great reviews about it that they extended them. Um, You know, not going to give any spoilers in case, you know, all these years later, you still haven't watched the finale (laughs) while they're filming the new miniseries for it. Right. But uh, yeah, it's just somebody that got herself over as a character and just became an integral part of the show. Just crazy how that happens. We should do a whole podcast on people that just made their own moments. <laughs> yeah, that'd be amazing. T- you should book Harrison Ford. We should talk to him. <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll reach out to my people and see if they can get in touch with his people, and we'll see how they. Yeah, go. <laughs> we, we're not looking for you know we're not looking for a Star Wars moment, but you know some of that Indiana Jones franchise wouldn't be bad, right? I'd like a role I could sink my teeth into and do like five uh, more of the same movies, like Rocky. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> I was hoping they do a Rocky like his last matches at an old folks' home. That'd be great. Yeah, no shit. Uh, throwing a beat in a guy while he's in a wheelchair. <coughs> well, JD, come... listen, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on my podcast. Um, 
I really appreciate everything you talked about. And whether anybody else has ever said this to you before, everything that you're doing uh, with regards to childhood cancer, you are a special person. And thank you, man. I appreciate that. I'm sure that there are plenty of parents and grandparents and extended family that maybe they never have had the opportunity to say that to you because it just wasn't in the cards in the moment but yeah um, no i i appreciate that it's I, uh it's it's tough i mean if there's uh, any family out there that needs help just reach out to a mission of love.org um you know we're, we're we'll help anybody that we can well, I, I don't want to keep you too late, but uh, we've uh, on and off the air been at this for about four crazy hours. And yeah. I, don't want to, I don't want to get you in trouble with the boss because, you know, I'm sure she's got stuff on her list for you to do tomorrow you don't know about yet. So No, no, I, I'm good. She passed out already. <laughs> um, I just know now from uh, two times, well, first was an attempt to do this in a three-hour conversation, and now this four-hour-plus marathon, um, you're probably going to, I'm probably going to have to move you on the May 27 show to first so I have somebody to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of the reason why I got in the comedy game. I, I, I have the gift of gab. I like to talk. Yeah. No. And then you, you also need to keep in mind that we, you know, we have an open tab for the comedians. So oh boy. that's another incentive for you. <laughs> you. You better be careful what you ask for there, son. No, that's all right. I'm, I'm, I'm not just, shocked by, I'm not shocked by bar tabs anymore. Believe, believe it or not, you know, I, I started off at the very beginning, the very first time I ever got on stage. And I made the commitment. Yeah, I don't need I don't need booze for liquid courage. I, I'm not afraid to get up there. And now it's gone on for so long. <coughs> excuse me that it's almost become like that um, superstition like baseball players have if they wear the same socks for every game. That yeah, I, like now I'm almost almost worried like, okay, if I even tap dance with it before I go up, like, I'm gonna screw it up because that's just the way you know, and so it's you know we're going on uh, almost eight years where I I, I still kind of you know stay in the same mindset. I I I've always thought okay if I get up there and screw it up I want it to be my fault not booze or anybody else's fault you know so yeah um so I've always kind of stuck with that and uh, you know I, I mean you know realistically across the broad spectrum of things this is probably the best thing to do but uh, uh, you know you're you're right, though, because we did every tour, we opened the show with It's My Life, Bon Jovi, and closed with it, and uh, which was a testament to, you know, what we do with the, you know, the charity and everything. And uh, so this tour, we decided to open up with I'm Still Standing, yeah. um, you know, out of the pandemic and the released on hilarious behavior joke of the name of the tour because everybody thought they were in jail. Um. And then that very first show that we used it on, as I went off the stage, I sprained my knee. So <laughs> two days later in downtown Detroit, I'm limping out to I'm still standing with a giant knee brace on. So, yeah. And I was like, yeah, we're not using that song anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and we still haven't gone back. It's my life. But it's been good, except for the time I think I did Garth Brooks all day long. And then I should have known better because somebody was like uh, a Garth Brooks tribute artist said he didn't even know that song. Wow. 
And I'm like, wow, he totally opened a concert in Detroit to that. But I go, it's just, it's, it's a cool song. It just like, it's, it's like, I look at wrestling, like the entrance sets the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, we needed something high energy. And uh, somebody suggested to me the Black Eyed Peas, I forget it. We use it in Port Huron. I'm like, yeah, that's a kicking song. And then, uh, you know, eventually then you, you know, you go right into that with, uh, that's as good as I'm going to be. (laughs) My entrance is the highlight of my whole, you know, five, 10 minutes. I'm going to be up here, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it's been a blast talking to you, brother. I I thank you for doing this. I thank you for, uh, you're going to be working with us. I'm sure more than once, um, you know, getting a word out there about what we do. And, uh, it's, it's just been a treat. Absolutely didn't know that i just keep talking well and and we're gonna have to do this again because we still got to cover the wrestling business but uh oh yeah uh, both of us still got to function tomorrow so yeah i know (laughs) yeah i have an interview tomorrow morning with the local paper so (laughs) yeah you know you got to continue that superstar lifestyle that you live yeah oh yeah superstar please use file footage when i add more hair (laughs) (laughs) that could have been a day ago (laughs) when violent rub through in the shower and it's gone yeah i i just i once i got to the horseshoe i'm like all right that's that's enough of this and i yeah Yeah. i don't bick it i don't bick it every day because i'll be honest with you when i started bicking it i didn't realize exactly how much work that was actually going to be you know yeah but uh now you know you know 10 years committed to it so and you know what's crazy is when i started bicking it i still had uh you know, sandy blonde to strawberry blonde, depending on the seasons. <laughs> and now I let it go two or three days because I have to, I have to let it go during the winter time a little bit to get some traction for the skull cap. Otherwise, it just whoop, flips right off. Yeah. The, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, now if I let it go two or three days, it's a whole lot of salt, a little bit of pepper, no strawberry, no blonde, no nothing. And I'm like, yeah. oh, now I got to commit to this because Jesus, I can't have, you know, I can't have that at 45. <laughs> yeah, mine was uh, late and it was, uh, well, God, it was about 30 years old when somebody asked me, so how much longer are you going with the Neil Diamond comb over? <laughs> and then one day I was up north, my mom, for whatever reason, put a giant shower in that cabin up there and I came out. I'm like, my God, I look like Arn Anderson when wow. I got out hour you know you know your hair is wet you can see how thin it is and my friend started shaving his he had the Hulk Hogan look going and he's like if you shave your head it makes you look like you have more on the lowest set on the trimmer so I started doing that and I haven't stopped I just can't shave it because I suck at even shaving my neck after all these years oh don't get me wrong I had to learn how to shave it because shaving your head and your face are two totally different things. Oh, there's, yeah. been a, there's been a couple times where I've gone too fast and, and I'm like, oh, they, you know, that giant uh, uh, Band-Aid you get in the multi-pack. Yeah, I've had to put that on my head more than once. But uh, I, slowly over the course of time, I've learned how to do it. You well, know, you can, know, if you ever do it to the front of your head near the top, you'd be perfect for wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Inside the business, folks. Uh, that's how we get color in wrestling. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've, I've, matter of fact, I'll show you how to make a blade at the comedy show. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I'm thank you so much, brother. Looking forward to May 27th. All right. Uh, we'll see you then. We'll see you then. Thank you. Right, thanks, Chad.